Have you watched? I know you've watched it, Tony. Have you seen uh, The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary on Netflix? Man, honestly, I avoided that thing because I feel like it's just a jerk-off session for Michael Jordan. Like, And I'm the biggest Jordan guy there is. Like, it's so obvious he's the GOAT. But, like, I don't know, sitting there drinking those drinks, like, get the fuck out of here. Well, <clears throat> I watched I finally finished it, like, two or three weeks ago. And the way they... I did see it. I, I, I'm just saying, I didn't... Okay. It wasn't like must-watch TV, but right, I did right. see some of it, yeah. So, like, I didn't... I don't see how they, everyone thinks he's an asshole. He pushed his people to be the best. No doubt. Like, I've heard that from... I've heard that from everybody that's Dude, watched that's 100% it. true. Anybody that argues with that's a pussy, okay? <laughs> like, my first mentor in the culinary game was, like, Michael Jordan. Like, everything was fine as long as you never made a mistake, ever. And so it's like he he made people fear him in a way, but also their game stepped up 1,000%. I mean, so, you know, I feel like probably Pippen wouldn't have been Pippen without Jordan. I mean, he had, he had to be accountable to that guy. Yeah, because you see all the players that have come. When I watched that show, I forgot that some of them even played basketball in the NBA, and especially with the Bulls when they won all everything. And I'm like... You take those guys, they couldn't play in the NBA now. Steve Kerr? Come on, man. That guy would that guy would get run off the court nowadays. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean it, no offense yeah. to Steve Curry. He's obvious, you know, obviously been very successful, but you know, the greatest leaders like rise everybody around them. And and usually they do the least amount of saying, look at what I'm doing. They're always making, you know, hey, I need to do better. Yeah. You know, and everybody else just knows that the the bar just keeps going up. Tony, what did you think? Did you think he was on, being an asshole on the show? Like, did you think the perception of being an asshole was what the show portrayed him to be? Mm, I just think that he he's a, he's a winner and he wants to win. Yeah. So he wants to win at all costs. I'm sure he's not the nicest person in the world, but usually most people that are successful have to step on somebody to get to where they're at. It's like they even say, like, when you're selling something, you're not, you're taking somebody's money. Like, something they work for, you're still taking something from that person. So it's like you have to take something to get something. So Well, I've always been told I wouldn't take criticism from somebody that I wouldn't take advice from. Mm. So, like, all the people that are, that think, Michael Jordan is mean or, or whatever. Like it's only because they're looking for their safe space. I mean, it's okay for people to not feel comfortable, you know, like you're not guaranteed to be comfortable all the time. Yeah. And like, if things aren't going well to just pretend like everything's great, so we don't hurt this guy's feelings. It's, it's not productive. Doesn't help. Like, that's why I always say I'd rather hurt somebody's feelings in the short term than, like I said, let them go down the path of wrongness or destruction. Because like I said, it's just, I don't know, it's it's case by case. I mean, some people are able to handle criticism better than others. Some people are uh, not, like, if you push them, they'll fold. Like, um, but that's not how I grew up. I only know the way that I was raised. Yeah. And that's generally the way I treat people. You know, I'm not trying to uh, to berate or bully somebody just to be an asshole. But like, if you see somebody's like not doing something right, and you can help them out, or you just don't, if you care about somebody, you want to see the best for them. 
And like I said, you, you know, like they say you're the sum of the five people you hang out with. So mm -hmm. why would you not want everybody around you to be above average? At least trying. Yeah. I mean, you can uh, you can teach a lot of things, but you can't teach someone to care. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately what Jordan was demanding on the court was he felt like you have to at least care as much as I do. Mm -hmm. You can't be me. You can't be Michael Jordan. But attitude is 100% controllable. Yeah. And so all those guys played out of their heads in individual moments. Like, you know, there was Tony Kukoc who was great and had a long career of greatness, but like Steve Kerr or, you know, Will Perdue or some of those other role-playing guys, they stepped up in their moments, defined their whole career. Yeah. Like Steve Kerr doesn't get that shot. He doesn't turn out to be Steve Kerr. Yeah, that's true. If he's just a guy with a ring, you know, that was on the team with Jordan, that got lucky, he had that opportunity, but only because of the buildup of trust. That ball isn't coming his way if he hadn't done all the right things leading up to that. Well, it's kind of like, you know, everybody knew that Jordan's going to take that shot, right? And then when he passed it off at the last second, and Steve Kerr was just wide the fuck open down there for that easy shot. But he's got to trust him. Yeah, exactly. He's got to trust and him to make that shot because in Jordan's mind, he's making that shot. That's why he know, beat Whether he makes it or not, you know. Like, <laughs> what you say? That's why he beat him up. That's <laughs> yeah. a good point. But, like, yeah, it's just, man, I don't know. I, I was watching that, and I just I just didn't see that he was being an asshole on the show. Like, Dude, all throughout his career to his to his teammates. I mean, he is the greatest. It's just like Tiger Woods, man. That that HBO documentary about Tiger, so illuminating. Like, that dude was a nerd, right? And then he got a taste of, like, I don't think he even realized how great he was for a while. Mm. You know? Like, he was a nerd. But then he realized that he, everything his dad said about him was true. And he he got a lot of criticism for how shielded he was and how his circle was really small. He's mean. He's mm. a jerk. He's an asshole, whatever. No, he's in the zone. Yeah. I haven't seen this one. What was it? Do you remember? what it was? I, I'll just Google it. I'm going to watch it's amazing, it. Amazing dude. I mean, from a guy that knows way too much about Tiger Woods, like I'm a golf nerd. Yeah. And so the, the history is, I mean, just from an anthropological, like, like he's historical. You know, he's he's generationally great, but he's also statistically off the charts. Like he's an anomaly. He he was so dominant that it there's really no comparison to how dominant he was in his sport. Like the clip that he won at is so much higher than the, the next highest guy. It's like twenty five percent of his tournaments he won. The number two guy is like 8%. Like, wow. I mean, he was so dominant that just from observing it, it's cool, you know. But that documentary was well done. Uh, it wasn't perfect. It was a little salacious, and they focused a little too much on the, um, you know, the mistresses and stuff like that to sort of get people interested in it. But it did a good job of sort of highlighting what made him great and what made it important that he came along. I mean, I don't think people realize, but Fuzzy Zeller, after Tiger won the Masters in 1997, he, they stuck a camera in Fuzzy Zeller's face 
as he was walking off the course, old white guy. And every year they have a champion's dinner, and the guy who's the past champion picks the food. And Fuzzy Zeller said on national television in 1997, I guess we're having fried chicken and watermelon next year. The champion's dinner. Jesus. That was his caddy, right? No, no. That was just another player. Yeah, um, I remember hearing A that. guy, a former champion. He actually won the Masters <laughs> the year I was born in 1978. But this is a former champion who says we're going to have fried chicken and watermelon at next year's champion's dinner on national TV. That's, I, I see, I Mind thought it was, blowing. yeah, that, that's just, that's fucked up saying that. Absolutely. It's super racist. But it shows where we were then. Yeah. And that was only 25 and how years ago. Much, and how much Tiger needed to come in there and lap the field. He won by uh, 15 shots at the U.S. Open in 2000. Like, he was the only guy under par. Second. Do you, do you think that <clears throat> Tiger has one more mass, I'm not, one more major in him? Maybe if, if, if his back heals up, right? Well, his up. his back will heal. You can be pretty good at golf. There's guys that have contended uh, recently at the Masters uh, up to the 50s. Um, so there's one course, and that's Augusta, where he could possibly uh, compete at the highest level with some of these guys. And it's only because you can sort of hit it around there and not get in trouble. And it's not so long that he can't he can't play well. And the greens, the putting is so important there. But at the other majors, going to be tough. Too long, um, and just it's a young man's game. Does Augusta let women still, women in there now, or is that still they, the? They do. Condoleezza Rice is a member. Okay, because that was the one of the ones that was the last ones to hold out, right? Dude, it's ridiculous how I'm a golf purist. I love golf. It is literally what I would be doing right now if I wasn't doing this. But the history is not great. You know, it just is what it is. Yeah. It's an elitist game for old white guys. And, and Tiger Woods changed that. I mean, I don't think people understand. Like, nobody was watching golf. There was two people that changed golf more than anything before, after Bobby Jones. And that's Arnold Palmer and Tiger Woods. Because when Arnold Palmer won the U.S. Open in 1964 or something like that, he throws that cap up at Cherry Hills, it's on TV. Before then, golf wasn't on TV. Mm-hmm. Golfers didn't make any money. They, like, sold cars during the week and then went and played golf on the weekend. Wow. But after Arnold Palmer, it was on TV. And then the next big evolution was when Tiger came along. The PGA Tour, after Tiger won the Masters in 97, they started to compete with NFL games on Sunday. And that just is unheard of. You know, nothing competes with the NFL. And so the purses and what these guys make – like the last place guy on tour last year made over a million bucks. And so that's 100% the Tiger effect. That's amazing because, you know, like you just said, before the money was nothing. Nothing. I mean, you know, I remember seeing guys like winning like things you see on uh, Sports Center in the morning before you go to school and stuff. Oh, so-and-so won this summer. The t- grand prize was like 25000 Like, damn, it's a lot of money. But see, the TV is what allowed yeah. that money to get big. And, and the TV uh, deal... And see all this stuff that's going on with Liv right now. I was going to ask you that next. Yeah. It's fascinating, dude. It's it's absolutely fascinating because Phil Mickelson has enjoyed this sort of like everybody loves him, says the right thing at all the press conferences. Oh, shucks kind of guy, right? And then you find out, oh, wow, he's lost 50 million bucks gambling. I mean, this guy probably into pussy. Don't tell him what this guy's into, right? He's It's all an act. Yeah. And he's like insider trading, you know, all this shit. Well, he comes out 
And he says, listen, these guys are robbing us. They got a lot more money than they're saying. And we're supposed to be independent contractors, but now they're treating us like employees. Mm. So what are we? Are we an independent contractor? Can we play anywhere for money? Or do we work for the PGA Tour? Because if we work for the PGA Tour, you guys owe us retirement, insurance for life, yep. all this stuff, right? Collectively bargain stuff like that, like they do in the NFL or wherever else. Well, everybody, the media gets on Mickelson because this live thing is funded by the Saudi government public, public fund. So it's like the the royal family there, their public fund. Well, the thing that's that's so sort of you know contradictory here is like. They want everybody to be mad at these guys because they're getting paid by the Saudis. But, like, the LPGA Tour is completely funded by the Saudis. Like, the DP World Tour stands for Dubai, Port mm. Authority. Like, like there's – we, the United States, we buy stuff from them all the time. So it's all this thing to, to make these guys look bad for going to live. But lo and behold, when they started this thing – and they start getting some traction, now all of a sudden there is more money for the PGA Tour players. <clears throat> so it turns out that Mickelson was right the whole time. And they've, they've tried to lambast him in the, in the media and make him look like this really bad guy. But really, what he did is just advance the players' rights. They're getting more money. They're playing less. Like, they're starting a thing where Tiger and Jordan are going to play virtual golf. Oh, wow. So That's they, like, do awesome. it from their house. And get paid. So it's an interesting situation. To me, it's fascinating to watch it you know, unfold because people love to watch institutions get torn down. Well, I saw that Liv has, I uh, forget the famous guy that's over there right now, well, one of them. He's made like $30 million in like 15 starts. Oh, pardon me. I'm sorry. The, uh, the, the money is not comparable. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, if, if you're doing just a money comparison— the PJ Tour is in, in bad shape. Really. Well, they offered Tiger, what was it, $600 million to come over? $980. Oh, oh, yeah, Almost a billion. Oh, shit. But, I mean, if you, if you be real, this public fund that the Saudis have, it has over $500 billion in it. So they really tried to, in my opinion, they tried to steal Tiger. If they really wanted Tiger, they should have said, we'll give you $10 billion. Jesus. I mean, they're going to make it. Yeah. He would have instantly, like, legitimized that tour overnight. You can't pay for that. Who do you think is going next? Like, which big names do you see going? Because it's a lot of money, man. Like, why why wouldn't you? All of them. (laughs) I mean, that's the truth. And the reason is because ultimately it comes down to the interest level of the Saudi prince. If he decides that he wants to buy a golf tour, that's what he's going to do. The money is mm-hmm. endless. It's a, it's, a, it's a tap, a river of money that has no valve on it. It's just open. Mm. So when that $500 billion runs out, they'll just put another $500 billion in there. I mean, so what the PGA Tour should have done from the very beginning is work with these guys. Like, why are you going to pretend like – it's like the NCAA trying to protect amateurism. It's yeah. a joke. Right. It, like they should have always been working with this NIL stuff. Everybody who's not blind can see that. And these PGA Tour people should have they should have just said, look, we can share these guys. You make money on them here. and make money on them in the U.S. No big deal. So what it was that's the, what's going to happen anyway. Yeah. What was the final result of the um, 
the PGA Tour and independent contractor. Well, I mean, that's all still it's being still litigated. On. Yeah, it's all still being litigated. But ultimately, what Mickelson, and this is why I think this guy, alt, in, eventually people will see that he fell on his sword to help his fellow guys. Because all the guys that come after this are going to get a better deal from the tour. If it even last. I mean, it's it's a lasting legacy more than winning the Masters three times and, you know, being a six-time major winner and all that stuff. If he actually changes the game because Tiger because that's the bar that Tiger set. Tiger, Tiger changed, changed the game. It changed the game. It's completely different. You know, I started playing golf because of Tiger. You know, me I didn't play golf when I was a kid. I played Tiger Woods on PS two, three, and four. Not the same as you, but you know. <laughs> so I never thought about playing a golf game because I always played Madden, right? So then I was like, you know, let me try this. I mean golf was an old white guy sport before yeah. Tiger. So, you know, he made it cool. Sure. So that's why I think he's like Jordan. You know, you're there to me. They're very apples and apples comparison because they were both successful at arguably the highest level, and they both caught a lot of criticism. You know, and like tight, like I was saying, institutions and people love to tear institutions down. They tried that with Jordan. If if Jordan existed post social media, oh, it would have been. I mean, his father was murdered. Yeah, like he was implicated in all sorts of gambling stuff like all that stuff was very hush hush because it was you know just not the twitter world or whatever right like um tiger man they built this guy up he's like the poster child of everybody's everything and boy they tore him down they enjoyed that part just as much yeah, they definitely try to like when that thing came out where he got the DUI and then his wife was chasing him out the house because and he wrecked the car or whatever like you saw that, <clears throat> excuse me, you saw that everywhere. But do you know what? For me, I just thought, man, this guy's going through his shit. Like we've all had friends who've ended in a messy divorce. Sometimes yeah. that shit isn't neat, you know, like, but if everybody's watching, boy, that must be tough. And, you know, everyone wants their ratings. So that's why I was everywhere, right? Yeah. I mean, the vultures are, are swarming the instant that anything comes up, but he did himself no favors. I ain't no tiger apologist. I mean, you you fell asleep at the wheel, you know, looking like you've been up all night doing God knows what. Like, <laughs> if if that happens, you know, whatever the case may be, it just is what it is. But I do love Tiger Woods. If I had the chance to play one round with anybody live or dead, it would definitely be Tiger Woods. Definitely. I like that. And this will be controversial because – no, it's like one of the most polarizing figures, right? People either lo love Tiger or they hate Tiger. And like they actively hate Tiger. They want other people to hate Tiger. You know, like. Kind of like LeBron James. Yo, that's it. Yeah. Or going to vote. Someone said to me the other day, <laughs> go vote. Um, and I, and I, here's the thing. People that tell you to go vote, they want you to vote like them. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> so if you don't know anything about what's going on. Don't vote. Yeah. Please leave it to the adults to figure this stuff out. I'm not even counting myself as, as one of those adult people. I'm just saying, like, don't just vote for the sake of it. Like, really, know what's going on first. Yeah, because most people are not watching debates. They're no. not looking at the people's history. You realize we elected a dead person, right? Yeah, I, I saw, that. saw that. Um, I saw like that in 70 another. 70% majority. 
She was dead. She died October 25th or something like that. Dude, listen, if you were the other guy, if you're running against a dead person, because it takes 40 days to get off the ballot, right? So they knew that he was going to be running against a dead person. Aren't you like, where's the check? Let me get an ad right now on TV. I'm alive. Yeah. yeah. My competitor is actually dead. Well, this goes, of course, to what um, Rob said, remember, Tony? That people just vote according to party. They don't even pay attention to anything else. I think people would vote for cry like if they saw it on the ballot. You know what I'm saying? They see enough <laughs> of those red. signs. They just say, cry like, sounds good. Yeah, it's, um, I think that they need to have like a report card or something where you know people's actual history of their voting and what they've actually done and what they've accomplished. Boy, what you're suggesting there is really, really controversial, you know? Because like when I went, I went and voted on Tuesday and. Like I said, it's just the little boxes you click, and it's right. not telling you what the people are doing or anything. And you don't know what they're. It'd be nice about. to see, like what Tony just said, like about if where what the how they voted for certain things that you're interested in. That would be helpful, you know, like abortion. If they voted yes or no or whatever, right? Or or at least then you would have an informed choice. Yeah. Or how many times they missed a vote, like they yeah, wanted they the office. Show and, up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That'd be really nice to know. Well, I remember a few years ago, Strom Thurmond was a guy who was in in um, Congress for a long time, 50 years or something. The last seven or keep this right in front of you. The last seven or eight years that this fool was in office, he went to like one vote. Mm. It's like you gotta be kicked out of there. Like if you're not going to work, why are you there? Yeah. Well you know? <clears throat> all that stuff needs age limit and term limit. Yeah, I saw something. It's like why are people born in the forties still like putting new shit into order what we're doing today. Mm. Like Mitch McConnell, I think it was Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi were both born in the 40s. Well, what's weird is a lot of the people that are making all the decisions for us, you know, would be struggle to qualify for the greeter job at Walmart. But yeah. somehow we are allowing these people to make all the decisions. Yeah, it's like you wouldn't want your grandparents running. No, you business. don't. You take their driver's license yeah. away. And then somehow... It's considered in this one particular field, it's considered to be a positive. Yeah. Like, why don't all these greeter people, why don't they just say, I'm not a greeter, I'm a politician. Yeah. And I need more money. <laughs> well, it's even like even the term limits for the Supreme Court. It's like, why are they have a job until they die? Till they die. It's I insane. Mean, it is wild. Think about this. And you guys are, have, have both worked in performance-based fields where it's like, like, Raul, if you stop selling beer, what are they going to do to you? They're going to get rid are of you. Are they going to let you keep the car and, and <laughs> keep getting paid on Fridays? No. no. Like, the thing is, most people, if they're not good at their job, they get fired. Yeah. And it, what's wild is, if you get the right job, it doesn't seem to matter how bad you are at it. Yeah. You can keep it forever. Yeah, you're. it's a, like a term, career politician. You know, people make a career out of it. And then a lot of people become really wealthy from being politicians. Almost all of them. There, There's actually a follow that's a pretty good follow. I'd have to look at my phone to to know exactly what it is, actually, now thinking about it. But it's a guy that tracks all of Nancy Pelosi's and other uh, Congress people's financial transactions. Mm. Like, so their stock trades has her husband is a wealth manager. Yeah. And so this guy just invests based on what they do. <laughs> and like his track record is actually really good because, see, all of their transactions are public record. Yeah. So they have to declare if they're selling or buying or whatever. And if you look, and he also 
took the time to like match up all of their trades with like what's going on in, in Congress. Mm-hmm. And she's clearly enriched herself. Yeah. I mean, like they all do. I'm not singling out one side or the yeah. other, but that is a conflict of interest that there's so many, like, you know, if, if you want to play college basketball and get paid, it's a big problem. It's a conflict of interest. Right. But like, Somehow we allow politicians to trade stocks. Yeah. I mean, they're literally writing and passing bills that affect that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're human. So you're going to be influenced or persuaded to go, you know. And like, how is that even legal? Because a husband is a, you said hedge fund manager or something? Yeah, absolutely. So like, he knows inside, like he knows stuff before it happens. You think they're not talking in bed about like what's going to get passed tomorrow? Like, and so it's one of those things where it's like, oh, I, I will pretend I didn't hear that. Like, Mm. Come on. It's ridiculous. So how that is allowed to continue. And I looked it up actually one day and there's a law pertaining to exactly that thing. And so they are exempted under some like doctrine of husband, wife. Like it's, it's, it's very sort of vague, but it's legal. You know, it's like, it's like been addressed. Like someone said, Hey, this is weird. Right. They're like, no, 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 it's good. Well, that's how people like that stay in power and stay wealthy. Because they know loopholes and different avenues than the average person knows. And people that speak truth to power get silenced. Yeah. It's wild, man. Uh, Now, when you're the president, you can't own companies and let your companies bid on... No, they have to divest. Okay, okay, okay. So the president, when they become president, they have to divest some of their portfolio to a certain degree. But a guy like Biden, for example, and like him or love him or whatever, this guy was was in office 50 years before, you know, 45 years before he gets elected. And the the biggest thing that he was a part of was the crime bill in the 90s that have been universally lambasted as racist now. Was that the stop and frisk? Yeah, all, all that in the three strike laws in California and all that. But like, you know, that was his biggest claim to fame that that was his, you know, he sponsored that bill. It was he co-wrote it or whatever. But, like, he hasn't solved a ton of problems, and he got to be president, you know? Like, so I guess if you just stay there long enough, eventually you get your shot. Like, hey, it's time to give it to, let's give it to Joe. It's, oh, let's give it to Trump. You know, like, let's give it to Donald. Yeah. You know, there. You we, know, can't give it to, we can't give it to this guy again. <laughs> yeah, He's already had it, you know? Yeah. Because <clears throat> I really think, like, the the president of our country is really just, like, he's just there. And everybody behind what we don't see is is what, really what, pulling what, the strings. What's going on and what they're saying, you know, like it's corporations. Yeah, like well, corporations act like people now. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like people think that what defines American culture is X, Y, or Z, but what it really is is consumerism and and corporatism, right? Mm-hmm. Like because corporations really determine what we do, what we look at, what we listen to, what we eat, you know, what we see, all of it. Yeah. I think the thing, too, about Unless we choose something different. Yeah. America's so new, too. It's kind of like an experiment compared to the rest of the world. So it's like we're kind of like a toddler. But see, that's not the view of most Americans. Yeah. Like most Americans were taught, especially like us that grew up in the 80s, like that was the height of Reaganism and, Mm -hmm. you know, patriotism was at an all-time high. And we were all taught that America is the greatest country on earth. And I actually really believe that. Yeah. Because I believe in an equality of opportunity. And I feel like when we're doing our best in America, you have the best chance at an equal opportunity here. It's not perfect. Believe me, there is 
obvious, mm-hmm. you know, contradictions to that notion all over the place. Mm-hmm. But because of that worldview, I think it does, it kind of stunts us. Yeah. Like we need to be more aware of our newness. Like mm-hmm. you just said, you know, we're, we're a little arrogant. Yeah. We're, we're a little cocky, I think. I think a lot of Americans too need to travel outside of America to see that we do have it well here. Or use the internet for something yeah. besides what everybody uses the internet for and go, you could at least, I mean, you could go to Turin, Italy right now yeah. based on, on your ability to virtual reality. And that's what Elon Musk says that we're on a trajectory where vir- virtual reality will be indistinguishable from actual reality. So go to Italy. Yeah. You know, see, see something else because Exposing yourself to other cultures, invaluable. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely eye-opening, you know. Like at, said, least we, tra- at least travel out of your state. Yeah. Like, when I moved to Austin, Texas, that was a life changer. Mm. Yeah, like, uh, I know ob- obviously a lot of people can't afford to do it, but there's certain things that people waste money on that they could set aside. To, what, do you think, what do you think people waste money on the most? Um, How much that going out. Junk yeah. food, yeah. Junk food. Tony said going out, so it means like dinner, drinks, alcohol, drugs. But do you view that as a waste always, right? So if you do excess, maybe. No, I think people should live their life. But I mean, if you say you want to do something and then you complain that you don't have it, but you're at Starbucks at, four days. Yeah, away. look at the things that you're wasting your money on <laughs> that you could just not do those things. Like get. Kroger coffee yeah. instead of Starbucks. Make it yourself. Well, you know, the Vente Vente is large, I guess, right? So, like, the large coffee at Starbucks, if you just get it, whatever flavor, let's just say 10 bucks or 7 bucks, five times, that's 35 bucks, right? You do that four times, uh, four times, uh, you do that 28 times a month. Yeah. That's 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 almost half a plane ticket to, like, somewhere like another country or if you a smarter thing to do would be to invest one of the things that i am so sad is in my life i didn't become aware and savvy about investing until i was in my late 30s Mm. like you know you can invest interest uh, tax-free until you're 18 well i think the thing too like kids today have it easier as far as like apps and stuff like that. If Robinhood would have been around when we were in high school, it would have been a game changer. Well, absolutely. Like, you know, my mom was a single mom, a brilliant lady, an ICU nurse, an educated lady with a liberal arts degree from LSU, but investing was not on her radar, mm-hmm. you know? And so for her, yeah. so let alone her to educate me on how to short a stock or to start a brokerage account, you know, so that you could do that kind of thing. Now, well, the thing is today though, <clears throat> if you don't do it, it's kind of on yourself because it's all there's out there. so much stuff on the internet to find that information out. Well, you can do Acorn. Uh, it's an app where where they take your your change of a transaction, like on your really? debit card, and they'll like whatever that loose change is, they'll invest it for you. In you four- know, that's Ashton Kutcher's company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I thought that was so cool when I saw that. Well, that's a great way to invest because people don't care about their change. Mm-hmm. You know, it's brilliant. Like like most of the things. And they're certainly not going to care about the percentage of their change that, you know, so Mm -hmm. whoever built that app, it was a one-time cost to do the coding and build that app. And then you have to figure in what it's going to cost to debug it going forward. But it would be small, man, you know, like a small team of people could build that app. So they're just making protracted money for like, Ever. It's brilliant. Like you're just taking your little cut, you know, and then, but you're also doing something that's good for people. 
Because I don't think most people invest. I have a store that has um, one of those big things of water, you know, the five five pound bucket or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And they put their change in there. Every time a customer says, oh, here's your change. Oh, I don't want the loose change. They, they, all the employees that work at the register, they always put in this little thing. Dude, that thing is halfway full now. So when it's already full, the owner's going to take it to the bank and deposit it and give them all the money for it. Dude, I thought that was so cool. I was absolutely. like, man, what is, I was like, what's up with this? Who's this? And but, they're like, tell them about it. But that's just you guys being aware of the world. You know, you're like, wait a second. We need to put a bucket here because then we're going to end up with something. You know, like <clears throat> Paul DeGloma used to save his change from Brookhaven. Crazy, dude. Like most of the bartenders, they count their money down at the end of the night and whatever change they got they like turn it into dollar bills you know and he would just save his and then one day he had like five of those five gallon buckets full of Jeez. silver chains he went to took it to the bank they were like dude you're gonna have to come back in like a week we gotta <laughs> send this off to the, you know, the, the treasury thing, yeah dude he had like 1700 bucks in friggin' change i don't Whoa. understand all the people that just leave their change behind when they pay with cash i'm like no nah. Because sometimes when I'm buying like a Coke or something, I'm in line waiting, and I'm like, I don't want that. No, there's an exception to that rule, though. I go to the same store every morning, and these people know me. So, like, if I have change, I always leave it there because when I don't have change, they never make me pay. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> so they, like, know Always for next time. Yeah, 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 you yeah. Don't worry about that 17 for now. You just put that, <laughs> put that in your hip pocket. I'll be back tomorrow morning and <laughs> need a cigar, and I won't have it. So, so how did you get started in cooking or being a chef. Oh, gas money, man. Like, what's funny is I ended up being a chef by accident, totally. You know, I, I was in high school, and I had a 1964 Ford Galaxy, a 35-gallon gas tank, and that seemed like a lot back then. You know, it was 99 cents a gallon back mm -hmm. then, but still. Uh, so I got my job, you know, I started cooking, and, and I was a dishwasher to start. It's funny because they called me Mr. Clean because I was always so bored, I would scrub table legs and do whatever it takes to just, you know, I'm snatching the plates out of their hand as they're trying to set them down. And so they're like, Hey man, you want to cook? Was it more money? Yeah. Okay. And then the rest is history. I, I, uh, I found out after a few years of doing like big chain steakhouses and stuff like that, that and made pretty good money doing that work for the butcher shop and a couple other places, but, uh, that the real money was fine dining. Mm. And then, so I started working fine dining and then I, I got a passion for it. And I, I always had an aptitude for it, but once I got a passion for becoming a great chef, I just, I ate, drank, slept it for years, you know? Um, and now I think I'm, I, I've reached a point where I, I have a culinary point of view that I can be confident in. Who were some of the people that inspired you? Like famous chefs? Definitely Marco Pierre White. I mean, he's like the first bad boy chef. If you haven't read Devil in the Kitchen, um, it's, it's a must read for anybody that's into that world or whatever. He, uh, famously had a restaurant called Harvey's where if you were rude to the maitre d' or to the staff or complained really at all, they would just kick you out. Like, like, and they wouldn't even tell you to leave. They would just, you know, come clear the table. Like your next course was coming. Yeah. And then this waiter would come over and just snatch the tablecloth off. Like with everybody <laughs> just sitting there. And like, not say a word. And you just had to figure out that your time was up. Get the fuck out, you know. And like, awesome. and like, nobody does that, you know. And yeah. and um, so that was like in the eighties. Uh, but uh, just an incredible one of the only English chefs to ever have three Michelin stars. Now all of his places have three stars. But uh, so him and uh, Anthony Bourdain 
was a big influence on me. Uh, and Erling Jensen, I mean, you know, that guy's an icon. Now, do you subscribe to the, I guess, like the Gordon Ramsay type way of treating people? Mm. I know some of that might be for TV, but I hear that some of that, because even Michael Patrick Gordon said it's kind of Ra- true. Gordon Ramsay was Marco Pierre White's apprentice. Okay. So he learned the Gordon Ramsay routine from the guy I just referenced. Mm. So, like, there's a very famous scene in, in that book I was uh, mentioning, Devil in the Kitchen, where there's a picture in there of Gordon Ramsay when he was, like, 20 years old uh, in the kitchen at Marco Pierre White's restaurant, and the back of his pants are cut from the cuff, the bottom, up to the waistband, and then his coat was cut all the way up, so it was all wide open, and it was because he complained about being hot. <laughs> And so Marco Pierre White just used his chef knife and sliced his jacket open, sliced the legs of his pants open, and, like, made him work the rest of his shift just like that. And so he learned all that stuff from somebody. Um, It's sort of like, it's one of those things, if you're not in it, you don't understand it. Like, have Mm. you ever seen, like, Bud's training for the SEALs? Yeah. I I know this is is a little bit of a stretch to compare SEALs to chefs. Yeah. But they call a, a cooking line in France... A regiment. It's a military style of organizing the kitchen. And so you have your your lieutenant and then you have all your privates and they're called chef de parties and chef de cuisine and, and all these different names for it. But it's a military regimented style. And so if you watch SEALs being trained at Hell Week, oh, you're going to think these guys are insane. Yeah, They're trying to kill somebody. But no, what they're trying to do is identify strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. and weed out the weak links now yeah. because it's, we can't find out this guy is a weak link when we're in some really serious situation. Mm-hmm. So in the kitchen, a lot of that sort of hazing, it does have a purpose. It's not just for the sake of bravado or like the TV stuff is yeah. the TV stuff. Right. But like real kitchens are like that because <laughs> People will slack if they don't fear you. Yeah. Now, that's just my personal experience. Like, people say, would you rather be feared or respected? My answer is loved. Mm. Right? I saw, I saw Snoop Dogg said this. Yeah. That was his answer to this question recently. And I thought that's a really astute answer because if people love you, then they automatically respect you. But nevertheless, like, you know, you have to make people accountable. And sometimes... That doesn't look great to an outside person looking at it. Yeah. You know? Well, I would imagine, I mean, you're dealing with food, which could kill somebody if you don't properly prepare it or somebody could get hurt in the kitchen if they're slacking or not paying attention. It happens all the time. Yeah. Like when you're inattentive to what you're doing and they call it soup in our business. So it's sense of urgency, please. Mm. And the idea is that everything you do is intentional because if you do things in a lackadaisical manner, it's a good way to like spin around and run into somebody that's got a hot pan in there, you know, whatever. Like, you can actually cause somebody to get hurt. Yeah. But more than anything, at a place like Erling's or any top-level restaurant, these people have to be blown off their chairs. They can't come in here and say this shit was average. Mm. That shit was uh, really decent. Like, they're going to pay 300 bucks for two people to eat. Like, they need to say that I can't make those mashed potatoes at home. Like, these things are... Another world, you know? And so the only way to achieve that type of goodness is to strive for perfection. You're not going to get perfect. Yeah. But you end up with 
really good when you strive for perfect. That's like my buddy Polly. Uh, he's a chef, and he's always uh, saying like, "You're paying for an experience." Absolutely. And a lot of times, you know, we'll go place and we're like, oh, it's, you know, whatever. And he's like, no, it shouldn't be like that, man. Not if you're putting your hard earned money for this, you know. Nope. If you if you hold a Rolex in this hand and a fake one in this hand, mm-hmm. does someone have to explain to you which one's real? Yeah. No. Yeah. Because that intrinsic value of the real one, like what your chef friend is saying. Yeah. Like that experience comes from someone who cares. Yeah. And you can feel it as the as the the diner. Mm. It comes across. It's not something you have to, like, look how this is so special. It will just be, it'll, you know, it'll shine through. Mm. Yeah, that's so true, man. Because like I said, a lot of times people will give people a pass too much, I think. Like, oh, they're having a bad day or whatever. But it's still like it's your money that you're spending That's on. our society now, man. Like, like it, that's our participation society where, like, like, everyone is so scared to tell a kid or a grown-ass person that what they're doing isn't good enough. Yeah. Like that is okay. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't mean you aren't good enough. Like you're not worth whatever. It means what you're producing isn't good enough. Please try to make it better. Yeah. yeah. And so that's it. <clears throat> especially, especially with the participation trophies now, but everyone gets a trophy at like or a medal or whatever at the baseball games or tournaments and stuff. But if All I was, if I was growing up now, if though. I was a badass on that team, I'm like, why are you? Yeah, what, losers getting yeah, shit. What, I'm yeah, the one, I'm the one that hit four home runs Hello? and won us the game. Not y'all. Like you know, it takes away from the kid that's special. If we listen, if you don't have any type of reference point for for goodness, like if everything's good, like if everyone's opinion is valid, no matter what, like like it's okay to hurt people's feelings a little bit like and say no actually you didn't win not everyone can win yeah. it's okay you know like you without having that to strive for why would anybody do anything and that's what i try to like about people that want demo, uh, democratic socialism or whatever term you want to use for that i'm like if you take away people's incentive to strive and like, if there is no reward for being excellent, like if there is no reward for standing out, people will stop mm. and innovation will stop. Like the reason why, um, like science and medical, uh, um, research gets pushed forward is because people are motivated to be first to be fastest and get rewarded for it. Yeah. And society benefits because the, the science is pushed forward, but I don't understand how people can get that. Well, it's like you said on in sales, especially or beer sales or whatever, we incentive incentivized a lot of times to sell X product, right? Mm-hmm. Even though, like you know, we and we have to come up with a game plan in our head when we're about to talk to the manager. Like, say you're the manager, and I got this new product. And if I get it in there, that's 10 bucks I'm getting paid for that that placement or whatever, you know? Well, your manager needs you to move that inventory. And so they incentivize you to do so. They're not going to just say, hey, listen, Raul, we need you to move these uh, 20 cases of beer. We're not going to pay you any more than this dipshit over here who's doing nothing. You'd be like, well, what reason would I have to do all that extra work? And so for me, it's like I am not as successful as I hope to be one day, but like the idea of being able to make it is what drives me because I I think I can make a better life for my kids. I don't want vanilla. I don't want just, okay. Yeah. I want it to be abundant. 
You know, yeah, you don't want to be content. No, no, but that's I the think, enemy of, of success, really. Yeah, I think the thing, too, though, we I guess you need losers, though, because without a loser, you don't know what a winner is. I some of the most successful people I know were losers at yeah. one point. Anthony Bourdain didn't write Kitchen Confidential until he was my age. Yeah, he was a coke addicted line cook until he was 45. And he wrote a book about the real inner workings of a kitchen and didn't hold pull any punches. And he became a multimillionaire mm. and an icon. Now, sadly, the guy ended up committing suicide. He had obvious demons. But it's never too late in life to decide that good is not enough anymore. I'm going to push myself to be a better version of myself. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a disservice to yourself not to achieve the most you possibly can. I mean, just being born a human is not guaranteed. You're, you know, you've gone through all these things. Your your past people have gone through these things to get to the point we're at right now and to just coast through life. Sitting around watching TV. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> what the fuck are you doing, man? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think most people get that drive at some point in their life. Yeah. Like, even if it like there are lucky people that have great parents that sort of instill that drive at them early in their life, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think that anybody, even if they don't have that benefit of having parents that, you know, push them early, at some point you say, what the fuck am I doing? This is what what, I got to have a purpose here. And once you decide what your purpose is, you make sure that what you say matters to you matches up with what you're doing. Yeah, because I think you have to have some type of ambition or drive, especially as a man, like to... I know they say some men don't mature till a lot later in life, like sometimes 45, 46, which is insane to me. Well, you're looking at a guy who didn't stop being 16 until I was 38. Mm. I was 16 until I was 38. What was your wake up call? Nearly dying. Really? I was in a I was in the hospital for like the fourth time and I had an NG tube put in. I don't know if you guys are What's familiar that? with that. Mm-hmm. So when you have a bad alcohol poisoning, like like chronic alcohol poisoning like I did, you have a buildup of some really bad stuff in your stomach. And the only way to get it out is to pump it out. And they put this tube that's about the size of this wire right here mm. up your nose and back through your throat. And you have to like swallow it down. And the way that they, like, it feels like you're choking the whole time it's in there. Mm. And they leave it in for like 24 hours. Oh my God. Two days sometimes to pump all this stuff out. And I said to myself, they tricked me into doing it, first of all. Like, if, if I had to go through this again, I would, I would literally rather be dead than deal with this thing. But they tricked me into doing it. And I said in that hospital room right then, Lord, if I make it through this episode, I will never drink alcohol again because it's going to kill me. It's, I'm, I'm going to die. Not later. Not like down the road, yeah. like I'm going to be dead on Tuesday. And so that was it. You know, I just decided right then and, you know, without at the risk of proselytizing, because I, I really don't spend a lot of time doing that. As a matter of fact, my dad was an English professor and felt that religious fanatics was a like a form of religious fanaticism was like a form of mental illness. You know, like he literally used that as a way to determine whether he'd be friends with someone. Oh, you're one of those people. <laughs> no, thanks. Yeah. He was an English professor and uh, education huge on my dad's side of the family. But, you know, I asked God to, to help me not to keep me from drinking, but to take away the desire to drink myself to death. Mm. Cause I was like really trying to 
you know, I was, I guess maybe I didn't have the guts to kill myself, but like I was trying to kill myself and my body just would not die. And I feel so grateful for that. And I feel like such a fucking douchebag for like, just so many people are not well and their body fights them on so many different levels and they struggle so hard to just live life. And here I am just out here dumping poison straight into my body a gallon of a day. So I, I really wasted a lot of time, but I asked God to take that desire away. And overnight, I have not had that desire for six years. That's awesome, man. And so wow. I just try not to drink today. That's why I tell people all the time, if you got a drinking problem, man, don't think about yesterday. And for sure, don't think about like in the far future. Literally, you can beat alcohol by deciding not to drink today. So what do you think, like, as far as, like, the drinking, do you know why you were drinking so much? Oh, heck yeah. Like, I have, uh, you know, like I was mentioning to you before we started the mm-hmm. recording, I I had to get to the root of why I was, because I was punishing myself, right? <clears throat> like, it's, uh, I think a lot of alcoholics and people that drink like I did, they're punishing themselves. They're they're imposing this exile. They stay away from their family members. They drink to excess where their body's in bad shape. But really, it's like it has to do with like trauma from when you're young, you know, all this stuff. It's like a multifaceted thing. There's all these contributing factors. But the overriding thing is that you know it's not good for you, mm-hmm. but yet you continue to impose this sentence on yourself. And so once you convince yourself that you're worth an abundant life, that you are actually worth being alive Mm. and that nothing that you do is causing that worth. Like that you just have that worth inside of you intrinsically. Cause I think a lot of people think, you know, what defines them is what they do. I'm a chef, I'm an investment banker or whatever. And if they do that, well, they feel fulfilled. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with having fulfillment in your occupation, but your worth should come from a different spot, not from what you do, but just from who you are. And so once you determine that you have worth, then you go at it as a job. This person has worth. You're not working on yourself. You're working on somebody else. This person has worth. He deserves to live. So I'm going to work like a task to make this person survive. And so for me, once I changed it from what people were telling me to do to what I wanted to do, I I tacked it like a job and I got the job done and every day it's a new job, but I, it just seems so much easier. Now I I often laugh with David and, and some of the other people that I went to meetings with and stuff. I feel guilty. Been too easy. You know, I struggled like hell. I tried to outsmart alcoholism for years because I try to outsmart everything. I think I know everything. Yeah. But ultimately, when I got humbled by four hospital trips and, you know, nearly um, having seizures and passing out and just like it was awful, man. Like I wouldn't wish what what I went through with alcoholism on someone I did not like a lot because it is just it's it's worse than drug addiction. But, you know, there's what people need to know is if you are having an issue with that stuff, there is no lost cause. Mm. I was the lostest of the lost cause, man. Like, you know, you see me in my 
in my younger days, I was a complete animal, like just so irresponsible, like especially with someone with six kids, just stupid, you know. But once I came to realize that, that that stuff was pushing everyone away and I was killing myself and I just had to become my own advocate. And once I became my own advocate and I was like doing stuff intentionally, that's when it really just I was fine, you know. Just build it up, build it back, brick by brick. Man, that's really, uh, that's powerful right there, man. I mean, I was so dark, Tony. I was at the end of a rope in a pit. I had alienated every person who ever, I've had more fortunate opportunities than most people ever have, man. I've worked with James Beard Award winners. My name is Fortunato, and I've been very lucky in my life. But I, I had alienated everyone. I had burned every bridge, every um, good relationship was just toast. And once I confronted that, and like it, it, that, all that stuff made me want to drink more. But once I got a little bit sober for even a small amount of time, and I confronted the fact that I was a bad person, mm. I was a bad friend, I was a bad father, I was a bad son and brother and all that stuff, I started to say, okay, what do I want to be? And does what I am doing match what I say matters to me? Because what I say matters to me is this list. Mm. Now I got to make sure what I do jives with that. And so I just, I live by the simplest. Like I think alcoholics ultimately can't be having nothing complicated. Like don't drink today. Don't smoke meth. Get your ass to work. Build this business. Make a brand that your kids can be proud of so that they don't have to tell people my dad was blackout drunk. Yeah. That's the plan. Have you been able to make some, get some of your friendships back from people that kind of alienate yourself from? You know, the thing is, I don't think anybody ever stopped being friends with me as much as people were like, we, there's nothing to be done. This guy is, we can't help him. We have to protect ourselves. He might hurt us. Right. And so like, in my mind, I can't even think about, oh, these people abandoned a friendship with me or not. Because that's the exact kind of thinking that kept me drunk. Like, people are not thinking about me. That's what I came to realize when I sobered up. I was always worried about what people thought, right? Mm-hmm. But they're not thinking about you at all. Mm-hmm. Like, people don't mm-hmm. care. Like, that. Like I think so much of what we deal with in life is like this self-imposed uh, prison that we build for ourselves. Like, all of the expectations we have on ourselves, we project it onto other people. They must think I'm not good enough. They, they're not thinking about it at all. And so for me, I know I alienated some people, but I'm building it back little by little. You know, people run into me, haven't seen me in a while, have a little conversation. They're like, wow, you know, you're doing great, man. You know, I'm like, yeah. But like, it's just like when you go to work, you just show up until you don't have to uh, introduce yourself anymore. And so Erling taught me a long time ago, when you get sober, no matter what, if it's been five years or 50 years, if you get sick or something, people are going to be like, oh, shit, is he drinking again? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been 20 years. I think, I, I think I've made it past that. But ultimately, you can't let that stuff bother you because who you are in somebody else's play is not maybe what's in your mind. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Everybody's the asshole in somebody's story. You know, so like I just sort of I try to be a better person today. And every once in a while, I run into somebody who. Like maybe I 
offended or, or did something. And I, I try to make amends right then in that moment, you know, like I, I want to introduce myself because the person that you knew before was a different person. Like there's a reason why they call alcoholics Jekyll and Hyde. It's two different people. Mm. I mean, and it's not an excuse. It's like, like I learned from this, this uh, really smart doctor at La Paloma. He talked about like the physiology of what happens when you over drink like I do. And so there's, there's not a lot of knowledge about how the hormones in your brain work. Like they can identify the four or five different hormones like serotonin and the ones you've heard of, but they don't really know how they work together and why they, why there's, they were released in certain amounts. And like, they really understand that. And so when they prescribe mood altering drugs, a lot of times it's just like, like they just give you some shit and see how you act. And if that works, they're like, great. Like, and if it doesn't, then they adjust it a little bit or whatever. But when you drink alcohol, like I do, there's these little cilia in your brain that receive like the dopamine and the serotonin releases in your brain. And when you bombard them with alcohol, they like get laid over. And then at at a certain point, they don't stand back up. Mm. And so what happens is even if you have the right amount of dopamine or serotonin in your system, you're not receiving it. And so a lot of times when alcoholics get in recovery, there's this cloud of ambiguity where they don't really give a fuck about anything. Mm. And it's, they're not happy. They're not sad. They're just fucking flatline. And so that shit takes a long time for that to recover. And for some people, it doesn't. It just is what it is. And so, like, you just have to give yourself time, like in my case. You know, I'm six years post-alcohol, and I finally feel like my brain is is operating at least pretty good now. I mean, it was really bad for a while, you know. Um, But I just, I hope that whatever people hear this, understand that no point in your life are you stuck there's not a single thing that you can't change nothing and there's it's like a desire though you have to want to though yeah absolutely yeah because like i was saying you can't want for somebody else more than they want for themselves you have to be a participator in your own recovery yeah You, you you can't be a standby person in that it has to be front of your mind what you want more than anything but that you can change any circumstance, like if you just like, and I know again, I don't want to proselytize, but like I literally have seen miracles work in my life. My friend was diagnosed with the worst type of brain cancer you can get. Her her name is Jennifer Dickerson. She was a chef in Memphis for a long time. She's retired right now because she's getting treated for her cancer, but she was, she was seeing a, a cancer doctor at the West clinic here in Memphis. And she had a, a tumor on her brain that looked like a hand. It was like gripping her brain, like all these tentacles. Right. And so when she finally got diagnosed, they were like, this is terrible. You have stayed for, um, whatever type of brain cancer this was. And there's two kinds and you got the bad kind. And they were like, you're going to die. You need to sell you all your stuff and, um, you know, get your affairs in order because you won't make it through the summer. And so I took her to her treatment every couple of weeks over at the West Clinic because she's my friend and I just wanted to support her. And then and I, and I uh, I'm not saying this for any type of brownie points for me. No, like, I feel like it's just what you would do for your friend, you know, um, and the treatment wasn't going great. And every every day I would pray for her and I would because she has young children and, you know, this woman 
she's like not even 50. And, and so I prayed my hardest, most <coughs> earnest prayer for her every, every day, man, for a couple of months. Well, she ended up getting transferred to another a specialist in Alabama where her parents live. And they gave her an experimental drug that was like $35,000 a treatment. Wow. And she got it free because it was like a trial thing, you know, like, um, well, anyway, she's, she's now considered a long-term survivor of this brain cancer and she probably will still die from it. But like to live almost three years after this diagnosis is like less than 1% of people that happens. And I genuinely believe her doctor told her after they did this scan and he was like, we scanned you more than once because we couldn't find the tumor anymore. Mm. Wow. Like it just disappeared. And like, you could go check her page out. Like it, and it, like the whole story's there, but like, I genuinely believe that enough people prayed for this woman where a miracle happened. I mean, statistically observable miracle, like less than 1% chance of survival. So I tell people all the time, it doesn't mean if you pray for something, it just fixes it overnight. But to believe in something greater than yourself is central. It doesn't matter if it's God or like if it's whatever, if it's the earth, if it's Mother Earth for you or whatever. You have to understand we're all connected and it's it's bigger than just you. Mm. All of it. Damn. Do you think when the doctor was telling her that she needs to go and sell all her stuff... Like her whole that, her whole family was telling her that. Everyone. Yeah, like instead of like people being positive, more positive about it. I understand the doctor Dude, I felt, has I to felt, be there for that, you know. I felt of, like this the biggest fucking like everyone was telling her. Like I went and moved all of her shit out of her house. We got a storage unit over on summer. We were moving like her most precious uh well what she was gonna do is sell everything. She was having a state sale and just sell everything so her kids could have the money, right? And as we were getting all this shit ready to sell, uh, because I know her, she's like putting this stuff that I know is like sentimental stuff for her, like pieces of furniture and stuff like that. And I'm like, you're not going to sell that, are you? And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm selling everything. And I convinced her to go get a storage room, a 10 by 10 room or whatever it was. I said, put some stuff in this 10 by 10 room that you're going to use when you beat this shit. Because when you beat this shit, you're going to need a fucking couch. Yeah. And if you sell all your shit right now, I know you got to sell most of it, all this antique plates and shit like that. Let's sell that and get some money for your kids. But let's let's keep a couple pieces of artwork that mean something to you, a couch, a table, whatever. And when you beat this, you'll have some shit left over. And like her mom told her she was nuts. Like, what are you doing? Don't listen to that guy. Get rid of that shit now so you can move here and you'll have some money for your kids. And she saved that shit. She's using it right now. Damn, it's so wild, man. Like, that's even, a real thing. Yeah, it's like we all know we're going to die, but if you have like an impending date that's yeah, like kind exactly. of concrete, that's a wild thing. You're like, you're getting rid of your possessions because you know you won't be here for it, that. Dude, it was, you know, as a 44 year old person, I have been very fortunate that I've had very little death occur in my life. Yeah. It's just, just the way things go. It just hasn't happened. But to organize that shit with her and, and try to like talk to her about tacos for lunch. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we would be talking about this, in, this horrible prognosis. Yeah. And then it would be, then she would start talking about Netflix shows or something. And it's weird because like, I didn't really know how to act. Like, like, should I talk to her about Netflix or should I be like, try to 
keep everything solemn or it was weird, man. Yeah. But it also makes you address your own mortality. Like you said, you know, yeah, nothing's I, guaranteed, man. I don't think a lot of people think about our demise enough. You know, I think a lot of people it's helpful. Just, it's, yeah, I think you know, a lot of people just think we're going to live forever. They don't want that's what that kills me about, like, not trying to do shit. It's like you you aren't going to be here forever. So yeah. Do the most you can. Like you have this lady who is fighting for her life and there's people on the outside at least look like they're healthy or whatever. And they're not doing anything. And they're just wasting it. You know, some people but would kill to be in our opportunity right now. It, it, I tell people all the time that my alcoholism was a gift in a lot of ways mm. because every minute, every day that I wake up, I genuinely thank God for it. Yeah. And like the situation with Jennifer it made me, it, it brought into sharp focus, like how quickly, like, dude, just a couple of years ago, she had her own restaurant, Jackson Chandelier, killing it, like on top of the world. Mm -hmm. And two years later, she's got this prognosis. I mean, literally her whole life was over. And so it made me sort of like, I need to get it together. It's, we're not guaranteed anything. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people, um, Sometimes, unfortunately, they need a rock bottom or some type of trauma or something traumatic to happen for a wake up call. You know, it's like some people just don't ha intrinsically have that in them that they need to do something. They're stuck in a rut, man. I saw something recently. Ben Affleck checked himself into rehab. Mm. Right. Like seems like a pretty innocuous headline. Right. Yeah. But then I started parsing that out a little bit. Like, do you know how many fucking people directly benefit from him staying fucked up? Yeah. Like, like not like some nebulous like maybe they sort of benefit like literally the money gets turned off if he is no longer in charge of it and he's in rehab yeah. and some banker takes over his trust and the people that have been succubus off of him are no longer getting their check every week so all of those people are actively trying to keep him from checking into rehab yeah and so if you're ben affleck for you to check yourself into rehab Fucking well done, man, because I know there are people they don't want you to. Yeah. And you'll find out if you if you try to advance in your life, there will be I tell people all the time, you want to find out who your real friends are. Just start a business. It's the easiest way to find out who your real friends are. But like there are people in your life that are invested in you staying in one compartment. And if you try to become upwardly mobile, you are challenging their perception of of what the status quo is mm. and they don't like that maybe they want you to keep being not quite as successful as them or just underneath them and i found that you just have to that's just noise man you just got to move forward and do your thing because like literally you're going to piss people off either way so you might as well just do what makes you happy yeah it's a whole crabs in the bucket mentality it's like you're not going to be up top if i'm not up top They'll pull you down, man. Yeah. They'll drag you right down. And it's another thing, too, because it's kind of like a mirror where, like, if you both come from the same place and you're doing something and they're not, it's like a reflective, like, fuck. Yeah. You know, it brings into that contrast, like, man, I'm not doing shit. Yeah. But see, for me, I don't view life as a zero sum game. Like, if you're successful, you're not taking a piece of the pie. Like, I do understand that there is only a finite amount of resources and success to be had in the world. But I don't, when I see my friends winning, I'm like, fuck yeah. Mm. Keep on winning, bro. Because, you know, I, I saw a post that Raul made the other day about some people that made a huge change in their life about based on their weight, you know? And oh, yeah. I, yeah. I remember what you're the about. looks on those people's faces were 
priceless because like their body is one thing, right? We see the obvious transformation in their body size, but, and I'm sure the photographer intended this result, but like, if you look at the faces of the people that I call them, their victory faces. And when a person gets a small victory or a big victory, those things are cumulative. So no matter what your small victories are, you just got to keep stacking them up, man. And then you can make it into that. Like you can get all the way to the other side. If you just keep stacking up those little victories. And to me, it's like, that's the easiest way to look at life. You know, just keep stacking them up. Yeah. Just be consistent. Show up. It's the same thing with those people that didn't, they didn't gain the weight overnight. So you're not going to lose it overnight. So if you quit when you don't see the results and sometimes we're our worst critic, that's why they tell people to take pictures of themselves. Because like you said, if you look in the mirror, you're just going to see yourself. I think if more people, if more people based their gains on how they felt mm-hmm. versus how they look, yeah, because ultimately in the beginning of any kind of transformation like that, I'm sure that there's a, a, I only say I'm sure because I don't know firsthand, but there's a lot of physical pain involved in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But then as your overall well-being increases, you're drinking more water, you're getting better sleep, you feel better overall. Like maybe your body doesn't change as fast as how you feel. Yeah. You know, and like some of the trainers that I've seen that sort of inspired me just seeing what they write are people that focus more on like how people feel. Mm. Cause like, if you feel like you're making progress, you can keep going. But like, if you don't feel like you're making any progress, it'd be easy to quit. I think it's another thing too, with the fitness, it's, it can't just be your physical has to be your mental too. Because if you're a, a, a beautiful vessel on the outside, but you're empty on the inside or broken on the inside, it's going to go back to, it will revert back to the norm. Well, you know, I I tell people all the time that AA, if people, if more people went through the steps, like I did not I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't do all the shit I was supposed to do, but I did read the book. And if you've ever read the big book, super interesting and relevant. It was written in the thirties and alcoholism is so universal that that book has not needed to be rewritten. Like there's been a couple of revisions in over the decades, but it's basically a storybook about alcoholics and then in a way out based on the, the 13, uh, the 12 steps and the 12 traditions, but the, the 12 steps, it's like valuable stuff for anybody. Like you don't have to be an alcoholic. You have to make this fearless list of like uh, basically self-reflection. Like you do all, you write down all the shit that you've done wrong all the people you got to make amends to. Um, it's basically a clearing out and a cleaning out of the closet of your life. You know, mm-hmm. like you'd sort of take a hard look at stuff and observe it objectively and make decisions and goals based on what you want to be and what you actually are. You know, I think if most people read that book, they'd be like, damn, I need to do some of this stuff. Do you think some people might be closet alcoholics and they don't even realize it because they don't drink every day i'm telling you it's the biggest enemy is that people think because their mortgage is paid and their car payment is up they don't have a problem with alcohol yeah i mean i have seen it in the restaurant business and being in bars a lot people that walk couples that i know come in the bar and they have one countenance cadence the way they're talking to each other the way they're interacting is all fine and then you know two hours later She's out in the parking lot crying her eyeballs out. He's, you know, furious. They've gotten in a huge fight. And, and like Scotty has, you know, Scott Horton, the Brookhaven bartender, he's, he's grappled with this shit for years. 
because like he's serving these people all this shit mm. and like they come in there they're happy when they get there and then they, it's a big problem because of this alcohol thing and he actually feels bad enough about that to where he's considered not bartending Damn. because when you're in there sober and you're just sort of watching this shit go down yeah it's it's like sad sometimes you mm-hmm. know it's like and like these are people that are successful um by all measurements you know successful well-adjusted people and and then when they get two or three rumple shots in them, all bets are off. Yeah. And that just doesn't happen when people get high. Like, I've never gotten into an argument with someone because they were too high. That's literally That's never happened in my whole life at all. And literally, if you're dealing with a drunk person, it's only fun if you are also drunk. Like, you know, drunk people are fucking outstanding when you're drunk. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's a little tiresome when, when you're not. So uh, Yeah, it's like you're babysitting. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Grown-ass toddlers. Yeah. Yeah, because, I, I, like, I think a lot of people, like, binge drink. And they're basically, in my opinion, you're making up for not drinking every day because you're going to do it in that one sitting. <laughs> well, like, when you do something that where you, like, and I'm sure this is the same for, like, fitness, like, if you withhold yourself, like if you hold back on something that you really want and then you finally let go, mm-hmm. boom, yeah. you know, I, I, I just, I struggle with it because like, I don't try to, I don't tell people what to do, man. Like if people want to drink, man, knock yourself out. Yeah. Just, just be aware, like be aware that nobody plans to be an alcoholic. Nobody plans to be a blackout drunk. It happens. Yeah. And it's like, it's gradual. And then like, all of a sudden, like I I can remember very clearly the first time I ever took a drink before I went to work. And that was like a seminal moment, Mm -hmm. right? Like, like I had avoided no matter what other shit was ever going on. I never got drunk before I went to work because I had this, you know, sacred, you know, it's work. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm not going to mess that up. And then once I did mess it up, I was drinking cooking wine you know, like stupid shit. So I just want people like if, if unsolicited advice, just be aware, man. You know, like, so if you feel like it could be an issue, it probably is, you know? Yeah. But like you, only, only, you know, like nobody can tell you. I mean, I'm sure there are people that disagree with that. They could say, Oh, we can diagnose this, you know, whatever. But you know, in your heart of hearts, if you have a problem, yeah, and this is my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I, I think like alcohol just in general really has no value. I mean, it really makes you feel like shit. It, like you said, you can it impairs your judgment. Well, you know, the whole reason it was started to begin with is just to make drinking water safe. Mm. Like beer was invented because water was not safe to drink, and like you know, when you brew beer, you boil it. Yeah, so it kills the parasites, mm. yeah. and whatever the microorganisms, and so like. And then they were like, not only is this shit safe to drink, <laughs> it's fucking really safe, you yeah. know? Like, yeah. And so you, you wonder what its place in society holds today, you know? Is it necessary? I mean, it's another one of those contradictions that, that gets, you know, cars, the speed, we got speed limits, right? But like cars can go like three times the speed limit. Like what's, why? Yeah. Like what you're not supposed to, whatever, but like you're not supposed to drink and drive, but bars aren't at your house. Like how do they fucking think people are getting to these places? You know, like, so you just, you kind of wonder, like if we were really 
dealing with a public safety issue? Would we really let people drive at all after they had been drinking? You know, like every car should have a breathalyzer in it. If you go by that, yeah, that yeah, rule of thumb, but that's not practical, obviously. And also an invasion of privacy, but you know, it's too big business, man. Now that's where you fall. That's why whenever, um, people are talking about a very complicated thing or a controversial thing like vaccines or something like that. I always sort of go back to follow the money mm-hmm. because rarely does that lead you astray. Yeah. You know, it's generally, if you follow the money, you follow the truth. Wow. Yeah. It's um, like I said, that's a, a wild story, man. Like uh, I just think a lot of people probably don't have that aha moment yet. In their life, um, it's coming. It's, it's coming. Sad. Like, it's sad. like I said, it's sad that you have. Some people have to get to that point, but but is it though, really, Tony? Because in the same way that you have to have losers, yeah, like there would be no perceiving happiness and joy if sorrow and sadness didn't exist. Yeah, like if we lived in a utopian society where we had eliminated famine and war and and sorrow and sadness didn't exist. I think it's a worthy question to ask, would that be better? Mm. I'm not saying it would be, or it would not be, but I'm saying it would be worth debating because it would be hard to make a case that sorrow and sadness is a good thing. But do I mean, would you just want everything to be great all the time? It did. Like when I moved to Austin, for example, it didn't rain for like 60 days. Now I realize that's kind of common around here nowadays. Yeah. But back then in 2007, I moved there. It didn't rain for two months. It was like perfect weather. It's like one of the reasons people like to live in Austin. The weather's fucking amazing. It's like San Diego. But after like two months of it, it's weird. <laughs> You're like, where the fuck's the chaos? It's, it's weird. You yeah. know, like, it's just weird. It was, it, it almost was like the sky wasn't real anymore. It was like a video game sky every day, blue, no cloud, not a cloud in the fucking sky. And it's just it's weird. Mm. Like you, I want to live somewhere where there's four seasons. Yeah. That's just my preference. You know, some people want to live by the beach every day. That's just not me. Maybe like contro- controllable chaos. It's, it's like, just, it's like, I don't know. It's, it's something about that chaos is actually calming and comforting, yeah, like, you, know? you know, like this is how things should be, you <laughs> yeah. know? Like your prime example was the perfect weather, right? Like you're like, this is a glitch in the matrix it's or something, right? Like, you'd be like, like, if you went to Times Square and it was clean, you yeah, know, you'd be exactly. like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, you know, a lot of people complained about that. You know, when Mayor, Mayor, I think it was Mayor de Blasio back, back then, there was this big push to clean up Times Square, get rid of all the nudie uh, sex shows and, and all the shit because they wanted, you know, more tourists to be able to come and enjoy Times Square. So they cleaned it all up. And what they found is people were like, what the fuck? You ruined it. Now it's like Disneyland, you know, it's like a daycare center. <laughs> yeah. Fuck that. Like bring back what Times Square was, which was gritty, you know, like all of that shit is real. Now you want to hear a funny story. It was about when I, took my Dodge Ram to New York city. You want to talk about fish out of water? You drive a full size truck. Where the fuck did you park it? <laughs> this is the story I drove in. So my dad's whole family, they all live in Boston or New York city. Mm-hmm. And we drove up there a couple of years ago to visit my aunt's beach house in South Dartmouth. And much consternation and debate was made about whether we should just fly or drive or whatever. Just bought a new truck at that time. And so I was like, we're driving, you know, 
Boy, that was a mistake. <laughs> so, so we drove in when we got to New York. We drove in through the Holland Tunnel at like four fifteen on a Friday afternoon. Like I, I still, th- when I look back on this, I still can't believe we did this. Okay, so it took it took a long time to get into the city, of course. And once we got through the tunnel and into the city, we're driving around Tribeca. There was so many cars and people. It, we couldn't find a place to park, obviously, okay, like at all. That's obvious, okay, but we couldn't find a place to pull over and look at the map. Like, I mean, we we couldn't stop. Like, there was nowhere to s- stop, even Jeez. for a minute. So we pull into this parking garage. I finally, because I know it's going to be expensive. I'm trying to avoid that, but we obviously we couldn't. Because we wanted to go have pizza at Times Square, do the shit people do when they yeah. go to New York, whatever. So we pull into this garage, and apparently in New York, you don't park your own car. Did you know that? Mm -mm. So you just pull in, and some other guy takes your car to the back. And when you come back, you give them a ticket, they bring it back down. Well, we pulled in. You know, I I had some reefer in the car. I had some. We were making a road trip. We had all our shit in the car. And so we pull in, and the guy's like, just leave the keys in and get the fuck out, basically. You know, and I'm like, whoa, wait wait a second. (laughs) No, I don't, I don't, I'm not prepared to do that. Like I, I, if I had known that that's what we were going to have to do, would have made some preparations or whatever, hid some stuff, whatever I got to do. But so I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. So I'm like, I'm going to back out. Well, there's already a couple of cars that have come in behind me. Right. And so I make these fucking people move. You know, (laughs) I finally back out of there and then I drive to another garage. Right. And so I go in same fucking shit. I thought it was just one garage. You know, I'm like, I'm gonna go somewhere else. You know, I'm taking my money somewhere else. So I go to the next place, the same shit. And I'm arguing with the guy and this woman who is clearly local. She goes, Hey, listen, it's pretty obvious. You're not from around here. (laughs) <laughs> and there's like this everywhere. So you're just going to have to deal with it. So I'm like, all right. So I leave this shit. We go to Times Square. We have some really awesome pizza. I have to say that. We, uh, I guess we came back. It was one hour and two minutes, right? So the parking rates were for one hour up to an hour and then up to oh. three hours, right? So they charged me for the three hour rate. <laughs> Damn. And so the guy, I give him my ticket. Typey, typey. Comes up and he says, That'll be ninety six fifty. Jesus. Wow. And I like I literally did like a spit take and I was like, dollars? You know, like yeah. I like ninety six fifty. He said, Yeah, you, you, we have to charge you for the, the three hour rate and we had to charge you for two spaces because your fucking truck was so big <laughs> that it wouldn't fit in a regular spot. Oh man. And I was like, that was more than the pizza. Mm. You know, like and so <laughs> and like everywhere we drove as we were leaving, people were literally flipping us off because, you know, this is what tourists do in New York. They just you know like looking at the buildings as you drive by. Cabbies are like flying past us, swerving in front of us. Fuck you. Go back to Tennessee. You know, like it was a nightmare. I will never do that again. Yeah. New York was cool, but like, man, wild. Different world. Yeah. Different world. They saw me coming a mile away. (laughs) They're like, Like, look at this hick. I mean, I didn't see another pickup truck the whole time we were there. (laughs) It's like all cabs and Priuses, you know, and it's like I'm driving this. Dodge Ram extended cab, long bed, you know, I just couldn't have felt more dumb. Um, and then when, when we got up to Mattapoisa, uh, up there in Martha's Vineyard, where my family's, um, where their vacation house is, they were, when I told them the story, they were like, 
they could not believe. They were just like, you got to be the dumbest person alive. <laughs> How, like, why would you even try that? But you got a story out of it now, though. I mean, it, it was it was one of those things where I felt like so stupid for being a stereotype. Mm. You know, like I'm Tennessee driving around looking up at all the buildings like I've never seen something over five stories or whatever. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I'm sure I fit the trope perfectly for the people. So how did you get started with your uh, food truck? That's a really cool story. So Matt Crone, who was a colleague at Erling Jensen of mine, I've been friends with him for a long time. He's no longer a chef. He owns a construction company. They're over on Cooper, uh, Crone Construction. Well, anyways, the guy that, that sells windows for them is my partner. Uh, and we just kind of hooked up because him and Matt are buddies. And we, we for a couple of years, we just talked about food. You know, I was cutting grass for five years. Like I haven't been in the restaurant business. Yeah. I got, when I got sober, I took my job back at Erling's and I, I realized that like, I, I don't know. I didn't want that job anymore. And I, I got out of the business and I bought landscaping equipment and I did that successfully for four, four and a half, five years. And me and Sammy just talking about food and, and how the sea of sameness in this town, I, you know, Everyone in in the business here, I think they're in a bit of a rush to declare Memphis like this culinary town. Mm -hmm. And if we're being honest with ourselves, and if you've been somewhere besides Memphis, and that's what I was alluding to earlier about going to another state, yeah, uh, can really broaden your horizons just to see what something somebody else is doing. But it's it's almost like if you get a business license for a restaurant here, they give you the menu too. And it's like, it's okay to not do nachos and quesadillas and like something more interesting would be fine. And it's not a knock necessarily. It's just a suggestion in my mind that we could be doing better. And so what I started is um, a trailer that focuses on the flavors that I learned in, in Austin from a guy named Tyson Cole and Paul Key, uh, two James Beard award winners. Tyson was on Iron Chef America. Uh, he, he actually would just posted yesterday on Instagram some pictures. He did an event for some Austin kids charity with Jose Andres last night, which in my opinion, uh, like the world kitchen guy with the vest or whatever, like he's probably the best chef in the world. And so the shit I learned from those guys in Austin will transfer here because they're just not, you know, I humbly submit that. There's not a lot of competition for those flavors because they frankly are not here yet. And it's, they should be, yeah. but they're not. And so we're hoping to do something that's different and unique and proprietary because like, I'm not going to buy stuff and sell it and expect people to be impressed by that. You have to make something. Mm. You have to create something. Like if you buy bread from us foods, anybody can buy that bread. So by proxy, that means they can have whatever you got on your menu. So whatever we do is going to be um, in-house. You know, we're going to make it. What are some of the dishes y'all make right now? So we specialize in uh, chicken karage, which is like a Japanese fried chicken. The easiest way to describe it would be like Japanese Chick-fil-A because it's nuggets of really good organic free-range chicken thigh meat. And we marinate it with like sake and soy and mirin. And then we dredge it in potato starch because that's like uh, it gets crispier than regular flour. And so the dish without trying is gluten free, like the whole thing. 
So it's marinated. It's used tamari, which has no wheat in it. And like the whole thing is gluten free, but not because I wanted it to be, yeah. just because it is. So it's it's fried twice. Mm. It gets super crispy. It's awesome. And so I'm pairing it up with like shiradashi and fresh citrus and shiso and mint and basil and cilantro and like all these sort of fresh, clean flavors that sort of elevate fried chicken to something that doesn't feel heavy. And so, um, yeah, we're serving that with like a spicy Donbury rice. It's really spicy and ginger and galango and sort of, it's a lot of stuff. It's like, um, you know, it's like a musical conversation, but with food and flavors. So you got a lot going on in your mouth, but it's pleasing. Hopefully. Wow. It's like you're speaking another language. When you think like, so? Well, it's just like a lot of the words that you're using are just not everyday terms for people that aren't in that. Yeah, and, and that's intentional. I, I hope to sort of provoke some interest level in that way because, like, what you were saying before, like, people feel like your your chef buddy, I think he said his name was Paul, he, yeah. he wants people to have an experience. Mm-hmm. And that sort of, to me, implies something that they couldn't do at home yeah, or that they wouldn't do at home, like, mm-hmm. without – because it, you know, it's not simple. It's actually kind of complicated. And so like to go to all that effort wouldn't make a lot of sense if you weren't doing it professionally. So like, that's what you should provide to people. If you're a chef yeah, is, is, a, is something they couldn't do themselves, you know? Well, like remember when we were growing up, um, we would, when we would go out to eat with our parents, like our family, that was a once in a while thing, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't and that remember was, a lot of that. Yeah, and, then, and, and you know, but like that was, we went for my brother's graduation and stuff like that. Yeah. But like, that was like, we don't get that food at home. Mm-hmm. So that was like the difference. Like you just said, that was something we can't do at home or wouldn't do at home. Mm-hmm. It was a special occasion. It was a treat. So you went to, you know, wherever you went. Yeah. I mean, now, now with the ad, you know, and I blame the food network for like, it, it, as interesting as the food network was when it came out and, and how like guys like Emeril Lagasse and some of the, like, it's interesting when you look at the history of culinary stuff on TV. Like, it used to be just like Julia Child. Like, when we were kids, like, it was the Galloping Gourmet. It was Julia Child. It was Justin Wilson, you know, the Cajun guy. I guarantee, you know. Like, Hello. Yeah. Those, Hello. Those, those guys on Channel 10 used to be all that, like, food on mm-hmm. TV was. And when the Food Network came out, you know, like, people don't give their knee surgeon advice because they feel like a knee surgeon could do their job. They don't need advice. But if because of the food network, Everyone's everyone like, thinks they're a chef, <laughs> not they just will, a chef, executive chef. That's brother. right. They can give you advice. You know, like, have you ever considered this? It's like, dude, you're a mechanic. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I literally get paid to combine flavors. Okay? Yeah, it's like, where's your restaurant? Uh, where do you work at, sir? Can so, harass you? I think that's unique to that field. Not a lot of fields where people like really feel like they're expert level at it just from watching stuff on TV, you know, kind of like I stayed at a holiday Inn last night. Oh so. yeah. That's cool. Okay. Yeah. But I, you know, they, I hope that what we do is sort of push people to try something new and something that's a little bit outside their comfort zone. Cause I feel like, like the garnish and stuff of my dish is kind of exciting and different, but the core of it is fried chicken. Like who doesn't like fried chicken? Yeah. It's, it's one of those universal things that like, there's a ton of fried chicken places in Memphis. As, mm-hmm. a, as a matter of fact, Gus has just got voted by some reputable list somewhere as the best fried chicken in the country. And so, like, there's stiff competition in this market for fried chicken. 
But it seems like in other markets comparable to Memphis, like there's an insatiable thirst for good fried chicken. People will buy it at a gas station. Yeah. It's good. What's the food truck called? Uh, So it's half cocked, right? So half cocked uh, Japanese chicken shack is our name. And so I'm trying to sort of, my partner is a comedian. Well, he is a retired comedian. He, he was in Dirty Movie and Dirty Movie 2. Like, like, he's a real comedian. Like, he's friends with Ron White. He told me that recently, and I was like, what? <laughs> like, what the fuck? He's serious? He, he was like, yeah, I was having dinner with Ron, uh, you know, because I was talking about the ayahuasca thing. I don't know if you guys have seen, like, he's sober now, Ron yeah. White. Like, he was famously notoriety for drinking good scotch, you know, the kind that you drink if you think you're going to die or whatever. But, like, he got sober and used ayahuasca. And so I was talking to Sammy about that. I was telling him all about the ayahuasca thing. He goes, oh, yeah, well, I was having dinner with Ron a few months ago. I was like, dude, you cannot be keeping stuff like that (laughs) to yourself, man. Like, like, I love that dude's comedy, man. Like, I would friggin' die to meet that guy. Uh, So he came up with Half Cocked as sort of, we wanted to do something provocative, right? Like, because if anything that Howard Stern taught me is that the people that liked him back when he was on top, when he was like the king of all media, New York radio, the people that liked him listened to him for an hour. Yeah. The people that hated him listened to him for 90 minutes. Yeah. And so it's like, you look at some of the influencers of today that are super successful, like... Um, Whistling Diesel, this guy, have you ever seen him before? Mm. So his name's Cody. It's a young guy. He actually lives in Tennessee now. But what he started was a YouTube channel that was going to be like, um, like, uh, raiding trucks, like, you know, going, taking a truck out and seeing how durable it is. And then like doing a video of all the features and whatever. And well, the first one that he did, and it was going to be like that, like a legitimate channel doing that. And the first one he did, he kind of tore the truck up a little bit and, People were like angry that he tore up this truck. You know, people were like, I could have used that truck for my business and you're just out there tearing up your daddy's money or whatever. And so he was like annoyed that people were pissed off at him for tearing up his own shit. And so then he just started like tearing up all kinds of shit. And now he's got over 3 million followers. Wow. Making like 16,000 bucks a day monetization from YouTube and Instagram. And all he does now, he's like, he picks a specialized market, like like sneakerheads. Recently, he bought like some fifteen thousand dollar Air Force Ones that were like some super one of one pair and only one in the whole world. And then he wore it to wore them to a construction site, and like just <laughs> fucked them up totally. And then like did close up videos of him creasing the toe, like oh, just yeah. like just <laughs> creasing the toe, you know. And like all the people lose their fucking minds. All the sneakerheads, yeah, you know. Like he did it with square body Chevy trucks, like destroyed this really nice one. And so his confronted, you know, like provocative, like. All these people, they hate him, but, like, they follow him, you know? And so just a little piece of that. Do something that's kind of provocative. Maybe some old ladies are going to get pissed off because cock is in the name and talk about it on the Internet. Like, maybe they'll get on there and start a petition that we got to get rid of this, you know, black cock because there's (laughs) we're going to put a big black cock on the side of this red trailer. That's awesome, man. (laughs) And and, and it it will convey to the audience immediately what we do. It will immediately say from a long way away that we have chicken 
And if people get offended by the black cock on the side of our trailer, great. Mm. Please start a petition to have it removed or That's whatever. That's publicity right there. <laughs> I hope that that happens. Yeah. I, you know, likely it won't because I want it to happen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but ultimately, it's less about the provocative nature of the name. And we're going to have shirts, you know, it's all, it's for the, that's what she said, guys. You know, everybody knows that guy that no matter what someone says, they could say, oh, yeah. could talk about turkeys or something. And he'd be like, that's what she said. You know, like yeah. that guy is going to be like our stuff. And we're going to have shirts that say, you know, come get some cock, you know, wh whatever the hell it is that we come up with something funnier than that, that my comedian partner will come up with. But like, uh, ultimately it's the food is, you know, people might click on our page for that that other stuff but like when they come and eat the food i hope to you know win them over that's art <laughs> you think so yeah i'm glad you like it because yeah. we 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 went a lot of different ways like i wasn't called the boom boom room because we have we actually have a catering business too that's going to be called that is called the boom boom room but i don't know if you guys have ever seen that movie life with martin lawrence and eddie murphy yeah so in the dream sequence in that movie, when he's going to the club that he has in Harlem, mm -hmm. it's called the boom, boom room. Oh man. I never put it together. And, and I, I love that movie. I think it's like an underrated, like comedic masterpiece. It's really good. Uh, dude. It's, it's unbelievable. Like the, the level of talent that's in that movie didn't make a lot of money. It was a flop. Yeah. Like compared to Martin Lawrence and Eddie Murphy's successful stuff. It's a, it was a flop by every, every measurement but it's friggin' money the whole thing I, I like i could quote the whole movie and i'll spare you guys that but like <laughs> but it, it, that's one of the parts of that movie that i you know it, when he when he says uh hey boy get your ass over here and clean this table up for i what does he say he said uh but it's it's in the boom boom room and it's this it's this club and it's like the idea is that it's bouncing, there's music coming out, there's excitement, there's, you know, energy. And so that's what I want. And in a food truck, you know, it rocks and moves anyways, because my big ass is stomping around in there. So like, that's the idea is that I want people to get excited about the food, because that was that's my promise to our guests, that I'll only do the kind of food that I get excited about, that makes me sit up straight. Yeah. And like, you know, feel something for it. So that way, when you come there, that's what you'll get, you know, and it'll just come right through. I won't have to convince you. So what days and times can people get it? Uh, we're open every Friday, Saturday and Sunday right now at 2178 Madison. Uh, and we are opening at 5 p.m. each night and we're going basically until people stop coming. Mm. But at least 10 o'clock. But on Friday and Saturday nights, we've been open as late as two. Oh, oh damn, shit, brother. really? Yeah, because see, my thing is, man, and I think one thing that this city has lacked sorely over the years is late night options. Yeah. So, like, back in the day when I lived in Midtown, we used to order camis a lot. That was before I knew what good food was. No offense to the camis people. But camis. you could order a fucking salad and a chicken parmesan at fucking one thirty at night. Yeah. And, you know, like, you could get something besides crystals or whatever the shit was that you had late night back then. Yeah. And they delivered it till two in the morning. And so I, since then 25 years ago that I was ordering from these people, I've, I've been saying that like industry people 
restaurant people, bar people, you know, titty club people, whoever, bar people, you know, clubs. Like me and Polly D, he'd get done at, at Bubba's at like four in the morning. We'd go to Waffle House, you know, on summer there. Yeah. And like there, if there was late night food to eat, industry people would go eat it. Mm-hmm. And industry people are good enough. That would be enough. That could support us. Yeah. Like if we just get the servers, bartenders, you know, third shifters, police, whatever, you know, like we're going to offer a discount for, um, police in uniform. We offer a discount for firemen in uniform, whatever. Um, and hopefully this thing gets going well enough to where I have a platform to start giving back with it. Mm. Because the whole reason I'm not working for somebody else right now is because I'm trying to build a platform in which I can become, I was a menace to society for so long. That's how I describe myself as an alcoholic. I was just like an F5 tornado leaving a trail of wreckage behind me. And so when you do that for as long as I did, you owe society. Like I have to use my time to build something so that I have a platform from which to give back. And if I, and like a lot of, like I mentioned Jose Andres, he's a great example of a, this guy killed the restaurant game to such a degree, so many fucking awards and accolades and money made on restaurants that were huge successes that he finally just decided that he was going to try to feed the whole world. And that's what the world kitchen is about. You can look it up. Jose Andres world kitchen, shout out like the balls on this guy, man, Did he like, he killed the restaurant game so much that he just decided that it was time for a new mission and to feed the world. And so people talk a lot about what can I do to help? What can I do? And there's a paralysis by analysis in that, in that way. A lot, a lot of people don't do anything because they don't like, it's not readily available to them what they could do. That's why I think what you do speaking about the philanthropic things that you guys do, the coat drives, the blanket drives, all all the shit that you do, you're allowing your friends to participate in something that's worthwhile that wouldn't be there if you didn't put your effort towards doing it. So what you can do, like me, I'm a chef. I can cook. Mm. Yeah. I can cook, man. I can cook for people because what I can produce with one pot and a cassette burner could feed 200 people that otherwise wouldn't get any food. And so for me, the plan, and if, God willing, this occurs, we get a platform from which we can give back. We will pick one day every month and we will make a whole fuck ton of food, three to 500 portion, and just go pull up somewhere in an underserved neighborhood or not an underserved neighborhood, just anywhere. Yeah. And we won't make a big to do about it. We'll just pull up and feed people that want to eat. And hopefully that simple gesture that has no political motivation behind it, that has no um, special interest consideration, just people are hungry. This world is not fucking easy. There's no need to know the story. Yeah. If you want some food, have it. Like, you don't have to justify why you want it. Like, so many of the things that, that the people that are struggling have to go through to, to get something to survive. Like they got to fill out a questionnaire. You got to listen to some, um, 
religious talk before you can get your free soup. Like God changed my life. I feel, I feel obligated to tell that story when people ask what happened, but I ain't going to tell some hungry person. They got to listen to it first. Yeah. Yeah. That makes fucking feed these people that need to be eat. And so that's a simple thing that I can do where like, if I try to think too big, if I try to think like Jose Andres, I'm going to feed the whole world. I fuck. I won't do anything. Cause it's easy to say, I can't do that job. But what I could do is give away 500 meals a month to start. And then we'll just see where the fuck it goes from there. Yeah. It's like they say, like, if you want to eat an elephant, you do it one bite at a time. That's right. You know, if you think something's so daunting, you won't start. You'll, you'll actually talk yourself out of it. Yeah. You'll, you'll convince yourself that it's not worth starting because there's no way in hell you can do it. Mm -hmm. But in my in my mind, like in the restaurant business, there's been lots of jobs that are daunting. Like if you got a bus tub full of baby blue mackerels this mm. long, and you got to take the backbone out of 500 of them yeah. by the time we open, and you got 900 other things to do, the only way you can do that shit is to do that and other shit at the same time. Mm-hmm. So like you, you can one bite at a time. Yeah, that's yeah. what we're gonna do. And and I honestly believe that because that mission is so worthwhile that God will make a way where there is not a way to be seen. Like right now I don't have the money to give away 500 meals a month, but I'm gonna, Yeah, I know I'm gonna, Yeah, because I want to, mm. because I choose to do it. And, um, would my family benefit from using that one day a month to try to make some money for my family? Sure. But my family's going to benefit even more than whatever money I could make that day from my children, my son and my daughter learning about service over self. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, giving is, man, I, I, I think it's, it's better than any gift that I've ever gotten. Like um, one time we did a homeless dinner or less fortunate for dinner. And these people called because we were on the news. I've told the story before, but we were on the news and people kept calling my phone like volunteers. And this one person called when we were at the center I was like, yeah, just come over. You can come volunteer. They're like, no, we we want to eat. I was like, okay, just come on down. They're like, we don't have a car. So anyways, they lived like over off Highland somewhere. So we ended up going to their house, and she was talking about her kids and eating days. But like just seeing how grateful they were for mm-hmm. something you take for granted, right. you know, it's better than any gift I've ever gotten. Yeah, and I think that's that's an, that's an under underrated experience. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think a lot of people realize – how much you get from something like that. Yeah. Like how much your soul is charged back up, like, you know, chicken soup for your soul. Like you can, you can go a long time on that experience. Like that could push you, allow you to keep working hard for this, these type of events for a long time, just by, you know, recently my, and my wife is a total saint, dude. She, she is a, really passionate about reduce, reuse and recycle. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and she's basically started a quasi uh, clothing community closet out of our house. And at first I was not happy about that bunch of used clothing clogging up my house. And, and then 
one day and she, she organizes all this shit. She keeps all the shit organized. She's got dozens of people reaching out to her all the time to say, I need boys size six. I need da, da, da. She keeps a track of all this shit. And then when she finds some stuff that she knows that a person that has already told her and might need, yeah. she gets it for him and saves it for him and all this stuff. Well, she did a, she gave some Halloween costumes to this, this really nice family. And, uh, uh, the, the young boy has, like I, I forget the particulars of the situation, but the, the kid had a rough upbringing, but he was still living like with his parents and at home and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But like the, the kid had never had a new shirt. Wow. He was seven or eight years old, dude. And he had never experienced having a new shirt with the tag on it. How fucking heartbreaking is that? Yeah. So this lady, Amy didn't know any of this when she asked for some stuff. And so Amy's able to get stuff. A lot of times shit's got tags on it. It's new. It's never even used, you know, and people are just fucking throwing it away. And like, there's no way. There's no way. I try to tell people there's no way, man. They're just stuffing that shit in the ground. It's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so she, she got this kid some clothes. And among the things that he got was some Halloween costumes and this brand new shirt. And this woman, God love her, man. She she did a video of this kid receiving this shirt. Dude, I mean, you would have to be one hardened son of a bitch to not crack a tear. I mean, this kid was so grateful and so humble in his graciousness. Like he didn't he didn't view it as like um like he was very excited about getting a new shirt. But he didn't feel like somebody was placating him or, you know, like he was just genuinely happy and grateful. And the video that he sent my wife, I was like, you know, all the clothes and shit in the house. I don't care, babe. You're doing the right thing Mm. because this kid's life is forever changed. In that one moment, he realized that someone beyond his mother and father cared about him. Damn, man. And so many people live their lives and they don't even know that simple pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people that um, don't even have one person to care about them. <laughs> right. And if you have, like, especially from their inner circle. So if you have a stranger that's doing something for you, that's even it more It validates powerful. you. Yeah. Because when, when people that are required <laughs> to care about you do, it's one thing. But when someone that you don't know, a stranger, a perfect stranger, says that you're worth some new clothes. You well, know? you know, it's also like... People that are supposed to care about you, like say, AKA your parents, mm-hmm. maybe they don't give a fuck about you. And then it's the people that aren't your blood that are caring about you, you know? And Dude, that's- it's, it's a sad situation because of what Amy does. We, we've, we've gotten to know quite a few families. Like, like, dude, we're, we are not like just balling or nothing. Yeah. But like, I've always felt like you, you can't, you can't not help people because you're not, you don't have your overflowing cup. Like my cup doesn't have to overflow for me to let somebody else drink. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and so because of, because of what she does, we've been very fortunate to meet some people that really bring into perspective, like what I'm taking for granted on a daily basis. You know, I'm relatively healthy. I'm able to work. I'm able to provide for my family. I've got a, a a brain and heart and a soul for the business I'm trying to build. And like, it, it's hard to live in gratitude every day when some asshole cuts you off on the interstate or what, you know, there's so many things that are trying to convince you that, that life is shit and the world is shit and all that, you know, stuff. But really, 
if you take the time to just like be grateful for breathing in and out, like, because that's not guaranteed for everybody. Mm-hmm. True. And, and, and like, and having a roof over your head or a new shirt for, to go to school with, like, that's what he needed. The, the shirt clothes were for like school clothes. And I remember as a kid, my mom, we didn't always have money for a lot of brand new clothes at school time. And so my, maybe I only get one or two outfits and I can remember very clearly kids being like, oh, you're wearing that again, huh? And like, I can't imagine what it would be like for a kid who's wearing the same outfit that his brother wore that's got holes in it because it's hand-me-downs. And like, I just have this this passion burning inside me to to do something that contributes in a positive way to young people having a better experience coming up. You know, it's just because these people, they don't, these young children, they, they haven't had a chance yet. And so like, you know, like they deserve a chance. And so thankfully I got this great wife and she's, she's doing the, the, the work of it, you know, but she changed my heart. Like I was worried about our house, you know, oh, like all yeah. the shit stuffing up my house. And she made me realize that it's so much more than that, you know? Stupid asshole. Like, well, what about your house? You know, when we start getting people, to, you know, people always bring clothes and stuff to the mm-hmm. house. And Tony's been taking a lot of it. You've been taking it to the Warrior Center. It's right? a lot of work, man. I mean, so like, do you want us to bring you may be bringing the clothes to y'all? We could absolutely partner with you guys on that. And I, I have space. Um, you know, my house, like I just said, is 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 already we're working on getting her a 501c started and actually getting her own space because you know, if she had, they they had a community closet down in South Haven that was pretty well run and it served a lot of people, man. Like a lot of people use this thing. And like, uh, not only does it reduce stuff going to the landfill, like, you know, but, but all these people are, they are able to go there and shop. Like we have enough stuff in my house to where Amy does these big, um, like free garage sales, like, cause she worked in retail for so long at Macy's and Dillard's and other places. She has like clothes racks that oh, she nice. can set up for garage sales, like, like actual stores. And so what she does is she makes it, sets it up like a store and then lets people come shop, mm, wow. you know, so that they can have the experience of coming to choose what they want. Because I think a lot of people think that like someone who is underserved or is in a position of need shouldn't um, want to have a choice. They should just be happy with whatever they get. And on a base level, I guess you could make an argument for that. But in my opinion, what Amy does is not only is she giving these people a few items of clothing, but it's like she's restoring a small piece of their dignity because they're able to fucking choose and shop. Maybe they don't want this shit, right? Like, so... We don't tell them you got to take this if you're going to take this or, you know, it's like because ultimately after all these clothes get gone through 50 times and we have these giveaways and shit, if we if the shit just doesn't go, we fucking okay now we can get rid of it. Right. Or we can go donate it to Goodwill, which is like the last resort because they do not operate in a ethical manner. But like it's still better than the landfill. Yeah. But, you know, there's just it's it's a mission that's like it's like any of those kind of great missions, like, you know, over population of dogs or something like that. It's a big job. You know, it's never going to be over. But just because you can't finish the job doesn't mean you shouldn't work on it. Yeah, it's like when um, 
we started Sunday's Finest, which was Sunday's Best at one time. Like, the reason I came up with that name is because, you know, I think if you look good, you feel good. No doubt. So, like, if people... You generally, like you said, people when you put something on something nice or your best outfit, you're gonna have a better like presentable. You, you might get a job, about, yeah. You know, you might be able to get a job that you otherwise wouldn't have the confidence to even apply for, maybe. And it's sometimes it's sad that we're judged by our appearance, but I mean that's just the world we live in. That's just reality, you yeah. know. It's like um, if you want to get real angry, just start thinking about how attractive people get every fucking thing they want. Yeah. <laughs> like that's not going away anytime yeah. soon. They also like, get paid more. Uh fact. I yeah. mean like it, and it's just like you can get upset about it, but like it don't change anything. Yeah. So now you just gotta roll with the punches, man. Well I mean, you know, I have a face for radio. So I, <laughs> I, I have I have been dealing rolling with that for my whole life. Yeah. But yeah, that's awesome that you and your wife are doing that for people, man. Because like I said, everybody needs a hand. We um, needed a hand. We've needed a hand all, you know, many times in our life. But but more than often than not, we have been in a position to help. Yeah. And so, you know, you and you're always like one person away before either going backwards or forwards. Mm -hmm. So like that one person you can meet can like introduce you to somebody that can really take it off or they can take it away from you. But like just being forward thinking and not thinking about the pessimistic side of it and being optimistic, you know. It's well, the it's the, the, it. the, the fact is, is that whether you're pessimistic or whether you're optimistic, you're right. Yeah. So if you think that nothing good is going to happen, you're right. Mm -hmm. But if you think that something good could happen, you're mm -hmm. also right. Yeah, it's like you're manifesting your own reality. But people do that because we're we're masochistic. Mm. You know, like like if something is I find myself doing this shit all the time when we open this food truck. The first weekend we fucking killed, man. We did like a thousand bucks both nights and to restaurant owners, they're all laughing right now because that's peanuts. That's an yeah. hour. That's an hour for most places. But we were super excited about just because like I said, I'm so passionate about this food. Just, I just want people to get it in their mouth because I feel like if they taste it, they'll love it. Cause even after five weeks, we already have a lot of regulars, which sounds weird, you know, but like repeat customers multiple times. Uh, and you know, Fucking lost my train of thought there. I just had a, I think I just had, I think that was a brain fart there. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot what I was saying. It happens, man. I, I talk a lot. <laughs> it happens. It's, it's it, you know, I often tell people if, they, if talking was the Olympics, You'd be, I'd be invited. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm in a medal, but I'll be there. Yeah. You should start a podcast, though. <clears throat> you know, or like do something on YouTube or TikTok or something where you get your information out of things. I mean, you have a wealth of knowledge. I mean, you could help out a lot of people with your stories, um, your journey. For sure. I've thought about it a lot, man, because I truly view it as a responsibility. Yeah. Because I didn't get to the other side of my alcoholism by myself. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of it was solo fucking work. But there was key people, David Krogh. Bruce at Memphis Mental Health Institute, uh, Chuck, uh, Chuck Myers, he, his small, still voice, he always reminded me that Heavenly Father could help me with my problem. His father was an alcoholic. Uh, he was one of the members of this billionaire duck club where I worked, where all the guys were billionaires and they, they it was, it was two million bucks to join this duck club, $2 million wow. to go duck hunting. 
Um, and so like all the guys, like one of the members was the CEO of CenturyLink. I looked him up one day cause he was this real nerdy guy named Glenn, real nice guy. But I looked him up and apparently the guy had been making 25 million bucks a year at CenturyLink for the last 20 years. So that's 400, Jeez. 400 and something million. And then no telling what kind of side deals that guy's working. Uh, but like all those, all those billionaire, um, duck guys, they, like there was like a a line that ran through those guys. Um, I did it again. I had another brain fart. I think I have talked myself into <laughs> fucking oblivion. No, Chuck was a member there. Chuck was a member there, and he helped remind me that I could I could stop this alcoholism thing. And so, for all the people that are struggling with that shit, a lot of times it, it, it's not a simple answer. People want to hear that it you can just do this and it's easy. It's, it's not, but you can do it, man. You can get to the other side of it, and there's more than one way to get there. And I think a lot of times the recovery road is viewed as like one thing, like one way, especially if you go to a recovery center and you're going to follow their program and you're not going to be able to deviate from that. But the truth is what matters is that you get to the other side. It doesn't really matter how you get there. Yeah, I guess it's got to get to that point where you love yourself enough to want to change. I don't know how I got to that point, dude, because I was deeply, I, I, w- I was, I hated myself. Yeah. I loathed myself. And it was because I was a liar and I was not a, a, a person who showed up. I wasn't, um, I did a lot of good work and stuff like that, but like it was all ego based. Like mm-hmm. when people needed me, I was not available, you know, and that when you act that way, eventually you start to feel so bad about yourself that you punish yourself. And you, it's, it's a, it's like, it's like if you're on a, a merry-go-round and you don't think you can just step off, mm. like you can just get off. I try to tell people that ask, cause I don't, I don't volunteer this information. Like what you were saying earlier about like I, people could benefit from my story. Yeah. I, I feel like it's a, it's an obligation that I owe to tell it. Because I thought I was going to die. I mean, I, I genuinely thought I was, I had already resigned myself to death. I had, I was already planning my death in my mind. So I was completely beaten mentally, but I was able to come back from it from like a really simple idea, which is just to try to get through today. Just don't drink yeah. today. And that saved me, man. And like, if, if nobody had told me that, like if, if those handful of people hadn't encouraged me because everyone was off the bus, man, there was tons of people. Cause I was very talented. I was a high functioning alcoholic. I went to the chef de cuisine at Erling Jensen. I don't even have a culinary degree. I, I never, I don't even have a high school diploma. I don't have a GED. Like I, I moved out of my parents' house when I was 17 and I lived in Midtown on Blythe over by Cooper Young. And I drove my 64 Galaxy all the way to Houston High School every day for like two weeks after I moved out of my parents' house. And then a teacher told me I couldn't go to the bathroom one day. And I was like, bitch, I don't even live at home. <laughs> like, like, I'm just giving you notice. I'm not asking yeah. permission. Yeah. I'm telling you that I'm going to the bathroom. And she was like, oh, no, you're not. And I was like, you know what? On second thought, I'm fucking out of here altogether. And I remember Dr. Atkins, who is yeah. now the um, superintendent of the Collierville District. He was the vice principal 
at Houston back then. Mm -hmm. And he met me at the back door and was like, you can't leave. And I was like, you can't fucking stop me. And because of my dumb ass, obstinate stubbornness, like I was going to graduate in like four weeks or something. I just told him to fuck off. And so I never went back, got my GED, but I was able to get all the way to the top. And I was, you know, in Memphis, you know, like best restaurant, in Memphis, all that shit. But it was always fated to come crashing down because of this big hairy problem, this alcoholism shit. Now, do you think a lot of people maybe not know that they have a problem or maybe they're just being delusional? No, I think, I think, you know, you have a problem. I, mean, I can only speak for myself, Yeah, but I can surmise. I think that a lot of people know sooner than they're willing to admit it. Mm. Uh, and so what they project outwardly in their speech and when they talk to their friends may be very confident. I'm fine. Everything is fine because our nature is to not let on when we're in trouble. Yeah. And so you're trying to fix it. You're trying to get in front of it. Like alcoholics as a rule, they all think nobody knows. Like, you know, like they all think they're fooling people with their drinking in the car or vodka in a water bottle or like all their stupid shit that we do mm-hmm. as alcoholics. We think we're fooling people, but really it, it couldn't be more obvious. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you're trying to get in front of it. You're, you're trying to, you know, fix and, and spin and do all this shit. And it's exhausting. Yeah. You know, and eventually the exhaustive nature of trying to stay on top of all those lies and, and shit, it's like, it just, it just eats you alive. I follow this guy on TikTok that, um, he's, in, he's a recovery for like, he's been sober now for 20 years, but like all the videos he makes is like, re re um, what is it called? Re recreated. Mm-hmm. And like one of the videos, like he's having breakfast and his wife gives him the breakfast. It's like, Hey, you can go get dressed. There's no alcohol here. Look, you think this is alcohol? <laughs> dry? You know, so as soon as, she, as soon as she leaves, like, you know, hypothetically she walks away, like the bottle, I mean, the salt, uh, shake, shaker, he unscrews it and drinks the vodka and then screws it back before she comes back. Like, he's like, that's what we used to do. And that is a great example of like something that is so wild that like you would never think that some idiot would be pouring vodka in a salt shaker. Mm -hmm. But I bet you all the money that I'll ever make in my life that that is the least weird thing that alcoholics have done to try to hide alcohol. Like it's. It's wild. It's it's truly a psychosis because the people that think they're fooling people are the ones that are the most obvious. You know, like typically when when a person gets to the point that, like that I was at, when I would drink, like my face would change. Not just like my mannerisms and my voice slurring or whatever. Like like there was a physical change in my face. Like, well, one of my exes who shall remain nameless. <laughs> gets like a screw eyeball. Like like one of her eyes starts to sort of drift off to this side. And like when she gets that sort of sideways eye, yeah. it's usually around martini two or three. Watch out. All bets are off. Like anything could happen. And so, you know, I, I, feel, I when I see stuff like that, it just makes me sad. You know, a, a really good friend of mine, a mentor, I mean, a protege, a guy that had a very successful restaurant here in Memphis. It was named best new restaurant at one point. I basically taught him all about Japanese food when he was working for me at Erlings. 
he went through a very public um, mental breakdown recently where he he thought that they had hired him at a hotel and he was calling like all these, like calling all chefs, come apply to this job. I'm the boss. I'm building the team, this, that, and the other. And the whole time he was operating in his own world. Like they called the police on him and wanted him to leave. Mm. And he thought that they had hired him to be the culinary director of this new hotel here in Memphis. And it, it, alcohol destroyed this guy's life. Now he had a lot of other shit going on in his life that contributed to why he was so depressed and everything like that. But you know, when I, I, I tell people all the time, they, a lot of people reach out to me with this shit. It was very public. He called out all of his former employers and just, just not, it was just the worst possible thing he could do. So a lot of people called to ask about him cause they knew that he was my protege. And, and when he was really killing it the year that they got best new restaurant in Memphis, I couldn't have been more proud of him because he was really overcoming a lot of hurdles. He had been sober for like three years. I mean, they were killing it. And then for it to all come crashing down like that, um, it's just a source of deep sadness. So when I see videos like the one you're talking yeah. about, like it reminds me of all the shit that I did trying to hide bottles. And it's like people, alcoholism is the one disease you can get yelled at for. Like, you know, like if you have cancer, like nobody fucking yells at you and says, fucking stop having cancer. Yeah. But like, and I, I have always struggled when people have called alcoholism a disease because I always felt like non-accountability was what got me where I was. And so like any ability or any effort for people to sort of give me a pass, like you were sick, you know? No, I was making bad fucking choices mm. a lot. Now, was I also sick? Yes, but the choices is what made me sick. But like, I, I just, I, when I see a person struggling, I, it's just a source of deep sadness for me because it's, it's misery in action. Like to watch a dead man walking that's struggling like that. And so what I do now is when I see somebody struggling, instead of like poking fun at them or like, I just tell people, man, like, Fucking call me, you know. You can yeah. call me in the middle of the night. I don't care what time you call. Like I had, a, I had a chef re reach out to me recently. This this chick, uh, an amazing chef here in town. I won't say her name, obviously, but she she reached out to me only because of what she has seen me writing on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Like we were not friends, and she said I'm struggling because I drink a lot every night. She's an amazing chef, um, in my opinion, one of the best working in Memphis, and she, nobody knows that she can't, she's struggling to not drink every day and yeah, like struggling so to not binge drink. And she reached out to me and I felt so humbled by that because she sent me a private message and was just like, you know, I've been reading your post. Cause I used to post a lot more about, about my sobriety because it was cathartic for me to write it. I felt like I could write write it down better than I could talk about it sometimes because it was too emotional for me. I, I'm a crier. So if I start talking about that shit too much, I'll start crying. It fucking makes everything worse. But like I could write it down. And she said from reading what, what you were saying, I, I could really identify with a lot of the shit you're talking about. And I just, I just told her, I'm like, listen, you did the right thing. Like you're, 
just you reaching out to me because we're not friends and I'm not part of your circle. That was a safe place for you to vent these concerns about yourself. And now you have verbalized it. You have put it out there. So it's a thing. And now it doesn't just have to live rent free in your head. You can address this thing. And this was several, like probably three, four months ago. And recently, just out of my own, probably narcissism, I I messaged her to see how she was doing because I wanted to see if my wise words had, had their intended effect. And she is doing great. She actually quit drinking. And, wow, that's awesome, and she, she oh, hasn't yeah. had a drink in like three or four months. And I'm like, and she's like, you know, I don't want to say like it was all what you said or anything like that. But she said it was very powerful hearing what you had to say, because the only person that can really help an alcoholic is an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are other things that 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 way of thinking doesn't apply. But alcoholism, if you have not been down through that, it's very difficult to, you know, relate to someone who's going through it. Maybe she also reached out to you because, you know, honestly, she doesn't know you, like you said, mm-hmm. and there's not going to be any judgment from you. And the, anonym, she, and the anonymity, you know, yeah. like we weren't face to face. It was a private message on yeah. on Facebook. And so, like, I encourage anybody that, that hears this, um, send me a message. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll type you up a plan because a lot of times alcoholics, they don't got they just don't have a plan. They don't know what to do tomorrow morning. You know, and it's like, get up tomorrow morning and make your fucking bed. And then when somebody calls you, answer the fucking phone and don't drink today. That's it. Don't do meth. <laughs> Number four. You know, like th- that's the whole plan, yeah. you know, but like seriously for I, I was stuck for years, you know, like I didn't know how to go forward, mm. you know, get up and make your bed. I think a lot of people don't realize the value of that. And the reason they make you do that in the military and the reason that they teach you how to do all that shit in basic training because they want to break you all the way down. Now, I'm not a military guy, by the way. I didn't go, but like I've had a ton of people in my family and whatever, but like they break you down to the very fundamentals and then they teach you how to make your bed, keep your footlocker nice and neat. And like that shit is, it's for your mental well-being. Like if your shit is chaos, you'll probably be chaos in your mind too. Yeah. And it's like, if you do try to decide to clean up, it's going to be a big task because it's such a, you know, chaotic mess. And it's like, fuck, it's, it becomes overwhelming. Well, neurodivergent people and people that have anxiety disorders like ADHD and and ADD, they could go help you clean your house. Mm -hmm. They could fuck your shit up. They could get it all perfect. But when it comes time for them to motivate themselves to do their own shit, very difficult. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. in, in those what going to therapy helps me with is identifying those situations in which I am my own worst enemy. And when you, in my opinion, life is, is a huge part of like figuring out when you're the problem because our nature as humans is to try to find some other shit. That is the reason why everything is fucked up. It couldn't possibly be my fault. Yeah. And so like you're trying to find all this other stuff, but the really successful people are the people that are able, cause it's not always you that's the problem, mm-hmm. but like if you're able to discern those times when you are the problem or when you are working against your own self-interest. And I did that shit, man. People told me I need to quit drinking. I'm like, no, I ain't got a drinking problem. It goes right down. You know, it's yeah. like the more people told me I need to do it. I got to go against my own self-interest. Just not do what people tell me, you know, and that's, that's dumb. But it is also like human nature. 
for some people. And you say around like 38 is when you had your wake up call. Yep. Yeah. It was my kids too. It was my oldest daughter telling me what a piece of shit I was. And Mm. she was hundred percent right. Like she was, my oldest daughter is, I say we're estranged now, but only because she doesn't want to talk to me, but she's brilliant. She's much smarter than I am. Um, and she basically laid out like a case, like a lawyer, all the reasons why I'm a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. And in my own crazy town, I'm like, I am going to counter offer this shit. You know, like I'm going to go through this and pick out all the reasons why she's wrong. She wasn't wrong. Yeah. And so I realized that like, Living like you're a teenager, and I say I was 16 until I was 38, because like a 16-year-old person, they don't give a shit about anybody but themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, like whatever feels good right now, that's what they're doing. And without any sense of consequence or like repercussions of their actions, I mean, that's the way a teenager acts, and that's what you expect a teenager to act. But grown-ass fucking men like me shouldn't be acting like that. Yeah. And so I'm still a work in progress. I mean, I'm, I got a long way to go. But at least you took the first step. Yeah. I mean, you got to, you know, like if you got a hole in the ship, you don't get a bigger bucket to bail the water out. You fucking fix the hole first. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to address the problem and admit there is one, you know. So how often do you go to therapy? I read for therapy. Mm. I, I, I feel that, first of all, I can't afford real therapy. Yeah. I would do it if I could afford it. Um, there was a very smart lady at La Paloma, um, named Ellen Faust. And she was my, uh, like at that place, there was group therapy. There was all this, it was really an amazing place. Like the group therapy was led by a different member of the staff every time. So it didn't get stale and they all had different areas of expertise and they did, um, acupuncture detox therapy. Have you guys ever done acupuncture? Uh -uh. Mm -hmm. Dude, listen, if you got the money. It's like 75 bucks for this Accu Detox therapy. They come and they put um, acupressure needles in like six points on your ear. Mm-hmm. And then you just sit and listen to like Gaelic flute music and relax. I think that that shit is part of the reason that I was able to quit drinking. Really? Yeah, because like it's, you know, it's acupressure therapy, but like specifically like the points in your ear, like, you know, correspond to like actual medical conditions and like it's pretty interesting science you should look it up and read but ellen faust was my like one-on-one my primary therapist it was it was cool because we actually ended up having like 85 mutual friends on facebook like she went to houston you might you probably know her really yeah so her name was ellen she got married her married name was faust Ah, you probably know her, dude. But anyways, she helped me in so many ways because instead of judging me, she would let me parse through things in my life and help me figure it out. And for me, knowledge is power. Mm-hmm. Like if you can understand a problem, then you can start to work on fixing it. Yeah. But if you have no idea what's going on, it, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like no matter what you do, it's probably going to be ineffectual. Mm-hmm. So. Like I would, I would totally be continuing that, that sort of therapy if I could afford it, but she's not cheap, of course. Uh, but like, I just read, man, cause it's all out there. Mm-hmm. You know, like there was a meme recently that said, 
Uh, well, as it turns out, um, lack of knowledge wasn't the problem because, you know, the advent of the Internet has yeah. proven anything is that lack of access to the knowledge is not the problem because mm-hmm. it's all out there. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you want to rebuild the carburetor on your lawnmower or if you want to learn how to stop drinking, it's all out there to get. You just have to go get it. You got to want it. Yeah. You have to be an active participant in whatever you're doing. And a lot of these, I think this younger generation and not at the risk of sounding like the guy shaking my fist at the sky, (laughs) these younger kids is everything is so easy and accessible and they're not required to learn anything. Like, like I was talking to my oldest daughter's boyfriend before she stopped talking to me and I was, I had a flat tire or something like that. Right. My daughter called me up and she's like freaking out about their flat tire or whatever it was. And so I went to help her. When I got there, he was there. And I was like, baby, I'm I'm happy to be here. But like, what the (laughs) hell is he doing? And she was like, oh, he has no idea. He don't know what to do, you know? And I'm like, get that fucking phone out of your pocket and Google how to change a flat tire. But in that moment, I taught her how to change it. Now she can change her own tire. But yeah. like, but nevertheless, this these younger generations, they don't have to learn how to do anything. Everything is so easy, you know? Shit, I mean, used to, if you wanted to know about science, you had to have an encyclopedia yeah, at your house. Fucking... Like, I remember my friends that had the Britannica, the whole set. <laughs> yeah. They were rich, man. I you remember know? that thing, man. Like, imagine how, that was what, 20, about 30 years ago. Mm-hmm how far we've come in technology just on learning aspects of technology where everything's on your, our phone. Now we can Google, you know, well, Elon Musk, uh, and I've referenced him a couple of times. I, I don't, I don't just blindly follow that guy. I'm not a Musk fanboy, but like he is a pretty smart guy. And what he says is that jobs will be obsolete, like not that far from now. Um, and that pretty much everything that people do as like labor jobs now will be handled by robots and AI. Mm. And so, you know, I think that that will usher in a new age of intellectualism because if people aren't like working in the salt mills, they'll have more time to like read and learn, you know? Yeah. Like um, I was at Costco or one of the two Costco Sam's the other day and there's a little machine, you know, you know how you used to drive the little thing to, clean the floors, mm-hmm. like make them look shiny again. Yep. There's a machine that does it. You just, oh, it, yeah. it just goes it beep, beep. It makes a beep, beep sound like that. And then if you're standing in front of it, it doesn't move because it has sensors. Dude, I'll, I'll do you one better. I was like, fuck. I'll give you a little investment nugget here. So AI, so like Amazon, when Amazon started, they were just a book retailer, an online book retailer. Mm-hmm. But they had this great idea that, to build this distribution network because everybody wants everything delivered, right? And so that is sort of the wave of the future because now they have like Prime Instant, you know, where you can get shit even faster, you know, than Prime. Mm -hmm. And so I've often thought, why aren't they delivering shit with drones, right? And so the answer to that question is because of the FAA clearance. See, like I used to think it was because they didn't have drones that could pick up heavy boxes or they got that. Yeah. So there's a company called Flirty, and they have the only contract in the United States to fly commercial drones for home delivery. And what they use right what they use it for right now is for like time sensitive deliveries, like organ uh, donation, 
and other medical uses. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the real problem was that the drones had to be piloted in such a way that they wouldn't interfere with already air traffic. Yeah. And so can't do that with a person. Got to have artificial intelligence to plan the flight plans and do all that shit. So whoever is going to win that AI race is who you should be investing in. And so there's another company called um, Zipline and they are, what they do is they launch drones with like a slingshot Mm -hmm. and then they fly these drones and they've been, they've flown however many millions of miles in Africa delivering like vaccines and other shit to like remote areas of Africa. And so the company is already pretty well um, established. Yeah. And so recently Walmart right now, if you order something from walmart.com and you're within 74 miles of, of Buena Vista or, or um, Bonneville, uh, wherever up there, it's like 74 mile radius. These zipline drones are delivering everything from walmart.com. Wow. So if, if it was me, if I had some money to invest, I like the, I think that Walmart is going to change the legislation, influence and lobby the legislation to change the laws on the FAA clearance to let those zipline things go everywhere. And so you could probably, they have an IPO for flirty and Zipline that are coming out this year. Jesus. And so, like, I think in the future, everything's going to get delivered to people's houses. Yeah. Because it's just, it's not feasible, all the fuel that it takes to truck all this shit around. And so, I mean, we'll see. Well, like, you know, when it's coming from, say, headquarters of Walmart at Bonneville, right, Arkansas, then that truck is... Bentonville. I lived there. And then that that truck is coming to Memphis. Mm -hmm. All that gas. Paying that driver. Yeah. Right? And then you have to pay the... um, if you're going on an Amazon truck, you have to pay the delivery driver. But what's what's great about this is people will be able to get shit like instantly. Yeah. Like you'll be able to go to Walmart.com, buy something, and then them immediately launch the drone and deliver it to you. Yeah. You know, if you if you buy from Amazon early enough in the day, Amazon.com, obviously, you open uh in the morning, I mean, you'll get it that same day. I some I, of the use, stuff. I use that stuff all the time. Dude. It's crazy. I, I get the Shirodashi for my my trailer that is a Japanese product, all the way from Sijiki, Japan. I get it through Amazon. I got it delivered in one day yesterday. Wow. This is some shit that I was trying to get for decades after I left Austin. Like 15 years, I was trying to find this shit. Yeah. And then one day, just on a lark, I was like, maybe they got it on Amazon. And I looked it up. <laughs> boom, Amazon. And I'm like, man, this is crazy. But like I, I, I truly believe that the next big thing is going to be autonomous drone delivery because there's just no way they can keep up with the infrastructure of the delivery demand. Like it's just not going to happen. They mm. got to fly that shit. Mm-mm-mm. And there's also like a you can go do the research yourself, but the, there's separate companies that work on just the artificial intelligence side of it because the hardware side, like as far as building the drones that can do it, shit, they already got that. They just need the, they just need the AI algorithm to fly them safely. Fuck man. <laughs> it will probably be something that the government has your job. They'll, they'll license it out to the public or to the highest bidder. In the private sector. I mean, because that's how we have drones. That's why we yeah. have the internet. I mean, everything usually comes from the government because they have endless amounts of money. It right. seems They're, like... Their R&D uh, budgets are endless. Yeah. I mean, it seems it like, uh, like your job will always be there because you'd have to... If something happens to the server for the drones, then 
Or like you know, if it's owned by like what dealer track, right? No, what is it called now? Oh, I didn't. I didn't know you were you were a tech guy. Yeah, I work for. I do IT. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh well, that that flirty shit must be that might be interesting to you then. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't know about that. I have to look it up. Yeah, do some reading on that, man, because the company Flirty has been around for a while, and Zipline's been around for like ten years. Mm. But when I started doing some reading about, because what what prompted my interest level in it was investing. Like mm. I was looking at what if I put five grand in the Nasdaq in 1999, what would I have now? Well, the mm. answer is fifty thousand. Wow. So NASDAQ is the index fund of tech stocks versus like the S&P 500. That's like all the blue chips, like Coke and Pepsi, whatever. But like if I was going to invest money that I wasn't going to touch for 30 years, mm-hmm. I'd put it in the NASDAQ. Yeah. Because like that's a pretty safe bet. All those tech stocks are, you know, I don't think any of that shit's going away anytime soon unless we have some sort of you know, catastrophic like EMP. Power yeah, like something thing. to do with the power situation, yeah. you know. Wow. Damn, man. It's a lot of information. I know. I've learned a lot today. <laughs> I make a lot. Yeah, that I'm a psychopath. And that <laughs> no, my no. Brain no, never no, turns no, off. No, 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 not at all. No. But you were like, what are we going to talk about? I was like, we're going to talk about you. See how it's almost been three hours or two and a half hours. Really? Are you shitting yeah. me? You're like, man, I don't know, man. You guys have a really interesting guest. I'm like, you're interesting, man. Like, I, you know, I self-deprecation is, is like my comfort zone. Yeah. You know, like I, it's funny. I, this is something that I, that I've found like endlessly interesting is like young people and their blind confidence. If you could bottle that shit, like when I was a drunk and I was not prepared to take on the type of responsibility that I was. I thought that I could be the president of the United States. I thought I was capable of doing anything. And the older that I get, the more pragmatic I am. And the more that I, I sort of lean into self-deprecation as a, as like a default. Like I wish I could, it's not good, man. Self-speech is important. Like what you say about yourself in your head or out loud is really important because you it's like manifest destiny you know like if you speak it so shall it be yeah and that goes both ways it can be good or bad yeah i always tell him all the time i was like stop trying to be the joke of everything all the time because that's perception people are going to think about you yeah and And that's what you're putting out to you to yourself right and and like in the same way that like art imitates life and life imitates art like if you if you keep pr- projecting that and saying that, then that's what people will perceive of you, you know, like yeah. when really you might be a lot deeper person, you might have, um, or like you might be a lot more confident in your skills. Like my, my default is to always sort of, you know, oh, shucks, you know, anybody could do that. But really like the things that I'm talented in, in my creative culinary arts and stuff like that, shit's special, you know, and like it takes other people to remind me of that because I, I just don't have the confidence that I had when I was 30 and drunk, man, when I was 30 and drunk. And that's what got me to chef de cuisine at Erlings. Like I had no business getting that job, but I was damn good, you know? And I thought I was like way better than I was, but now I have a much more mature sort of realistic view of, of my capabilities, you know, but like, it's still, it's hard to get out of that habit of, of sort of minimizing, you know, always. Yeah, because it's like they say, you. it's okay to have an ego, but just have it justified why yeah. you have that ego. 
But see, that's the thing. Young people, there's no justification behind it. They just, <laughs> it's like the guy that goes in a bar at 25 and he asks every fucking woman that, ta- that he talks to if she'd like to fuck or whatever. Yeah. And like, <laughs> yeah. that dude is going home with somebody because numbers. he's gonna fucking hit one. Yeah. It's like, what the hell, you know? And so that sort of blind, like if you could somehow take ownership of sort of that, like, just kick the door in, man, and, and do your thing. Like, cause it's, it's good enough. I mean, that's how most shits get started because somebody is just a go getter. Yep. You know, they believed in themselves enough to just take that leap or to say, I don't care if I fail, Yeah, I'm going to fucking do it. And I told someone recently that like, you know, I, this food trailer, me and my partner between the two of us, we got about 35 grand in it. But when you compare that and you juxtapose that to like the investment that a brick and mortar restaurant takes is nothing, mm-hmm. but like $35,000 to me is a, a lot, lot of, of money. money right. And so I just, I told someone recently, I don't care if I have to fucking sleep in this trailer, I will not give up on it because it's, if I go do a job, I, there's a ceiling on where that can go. Mm-hmm. Even if it's a high ceiling, a great job, you know, um, a job working for someone else has a ceiling. There's, there's a limit and doing my own business gives me the opportunity to have hope for 10 X, mm-hmm. you know, something that could actually build some generational uh, foundation for my kids. Yeah. Yeah. I, I distinctly remember went to, I don't know if you know, Nick Harmeyer and Chris Eubank, but I went to their house. They used to live off Highland and they had this thing on the refrigerator. It said, those without goals work for those who do. Boom. And it's like not saying if you work for somebody, you don't have aspirations or something, but you should have something on your own that you want to do too. I mean, that statement might uh, rub a few people the wrong way, you know, but like at the end of the day, find the lie in that. Yeah. You know, it's so true because, and Nick Harmeyer is a good example. I don't know Nick well, but I know of Nick and I know the story, you know, and all that stuff about V3 and, um, I, he's now doing the running the marketing at the zoo, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this dude and his beautiful wife, all he does is win, you know what I'm saying? And like, that's not a coincidence. That's because he set out to do it and he wasn't going to let anybody tell him he couldn't do it, you know? Um, and so when I see winners like that, cause that's what I view that guy as, you know, I just did a, an interview with Tony Westmoreland, the guy that owns Sycar. Oh yeah. Uh, they wanted me to come down and work at sugar grits and, uh, take over that place and redesign the menu and do a lot of stuff. Uh, ultimately I didn't take the job, but wasn't, um, just wasn't for me. It wasn't a bad situation or nothing, but interview, a meeting with Tony, dude, this guy, it's easy to see why he's a winning because he's, just a driven dude that that's just out there grinding and doing the hard work of making that shit successful. And so whenever I see people like that, it just encourages me that hard work does pay off. Yeah. Not immediately sometimes, but if you are doing the shit for the right reason and you're like, you know, if you're really, if you're doing it for the right reason, it doesn't matter if it gets successful, you're doing it for your own self. Anyways, like Bob Dylan once said that, if you're writing music for the audience, it's never going to be that great. Mm. Like you have to create art for yourself because then it's authentic. Yeah. And authentic art is received by people always. Cause like 
Yeah, like you said, if you're trying to cater to everybody else, you're going to censor yourself or you're going to not be your true self. And then it's and it's a fraud. Then Yeah. And frauds stick out like sore thumbs. Yeah. You know, like when you see a fake of something like you see a Gucci purse, you know, it's like, well, first of all, you know, by the person holding it, whether it's real or not. But yeah. like you could see it from across the room. You know yeah. what I mean? Like the, there's just certain shit that you, you can't fake it, man. And and like. I, I look at a guy like Nick Harmeyer or Tony Westmoreland or fuck you guys, man. Like you guys got worldwide followers. That blows me away. Like I remember very clearly when you guys started this podcast and just seeing the talking about it online and shit. And I thought these fucking guys <laughs> started a podcast. Are you serious? You know, like I was like, cause not, not that I was like thinking you couldn't do it or anything like that. Like I was just thinking, what are these guys going to talk about? You know, like <laughs> you got to talk about for two hours, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, but then as I watched it grow, you know, and I started to notice that like, cause like every once in a while I might go peek and see how many subscribers you got. Like are these fools talking to three people or whatever, you know? And it just impressed me, you know, that you got, and when you, when you asked me to come talk, I was like, man, that's awesome. Cause like, I really wanted to call you and say, Hey, can I come be on your podcast? But I don't know. You don't give yourself a nickname. You don't invite yourself on people's podcasts. Right, right. So, but like, I, I've I've admired you guys um, because when you whenever you do something like this, where you build something from scratch, whether it's a podcast or a restaurant, or you're putting yourself out there, you know, and like you're saying, "Hey, this is what we're doing. What do you think? You know, is it good or bad or whatever?" And and that can be scary sometimes. So uh, my hat goes off to you for doing it, you know. And then like as I see you guys building steam and you get some new hardware, you know, and like now you've got this, you've got merch that you're, you know, that people are supporting you all over the freaking world. Mm -hmm. Like, like that's got to feel good. You know, like when you see somebody t snap a picture from wherever, you know, and they're, and they're wearing your, your hoodie or your hat or whatever. It's like, it's validation, man. It's like, Hey, we enjoy what you're doing. It's cool. Appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. And Tony was always like, dude, we have to be consistent with this. So get your ass in here. We're going to record. I'm like, oh, so how, man. Do you, how do you think it's changed your life? It's good for the better because, you know, I have something to look forward to. This is I enjoy doing this. You know, I enjoy listening to what you just had, what you said about your journey so far in life. You know, like it's 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 what we want the podcast to be. And, we just, you know, and he also so I used to always ask him. How many people download the episode? How many people download this episode? He's like, dude, it doesn't matter. I'm not gonna. He's like, just, just, just focus on what I'm asking you, you know. And I just want you to do that. And I was like, all right. And you know, the next, a couple of weeks later, how many people listen? How many people listen? <laughs> he was like, dude, you sound like me. Man. He's, like, he's, like, he's, like, he's like, he's like, stop. I was like, all right. But like, you know, now I know people listening, right? Obviously, and yeah. you know, it's it, it's great. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, you know, it, it's just not your, it's just not your friends listening, mm. because you know, I don't, I honestly don't even know how many of our friends listen, right? But like, well, you know what's funny is I didn't for a long time, right? Yeah, and then one day, um, I was like getting really annoyed that none of my friends share my my business stuff. Like, it's like a really small number of my friends that, like, I do. No, but like I was thinking about that very thing. And I was like, why the fuck do I let Raul support me? But I'm not fucking even subscribed to his podcast. 
Like, what a piece of shit. Like, that's going to take me 30 seconds out of my day to go over there and sign in, uh, you know, my Google account with YouTube or whatever, and then hit the subscribe button. It's going to take me less than a minute to do that. And he'll have another subscriber. And then when I went over there and did that, then I had started, like, listening to a few clips. And I was just like, man, these guys are, they're just rapping and, and chopping it up and, like, you know, Whatever the topic of the day is, it, it could be something totally different. Like you guys could have a, a bodybuilder in here next week and you guys be talking about something totally different, you know, like, but I just, you know, w- whenever the podcast thing started, I've always thought how cool it would be to have one. And so when one of my friends started doing it, I'm like, fuck yeah, man. Like, like who are one. y'all's heroes? Though? Like, who are your podcast, you know, people that inspired you? I don't know. Like, did you listen to a lot of podcasts before you started one? Because I really don't. <laughs> I, I no, not really. I mean, yeah. I I don't really. I listen to Joe Rogan. I saw Joe Rogan not <laughs> not consistently. You know, here and there, clips mm. here and there. Why are you staring at me, man? Because <laughs> like, you're lying. <laughs> oh, the truth comes out. No, like if it wasn't for Tony doing the podcast, like he had getting, nothing to do with the podcast. Yeah, mm. it's all me. Yeah, that's the truth hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's nothing was, wrong with like, the truth and reporting. Okay? Like I tell you, I don't. Did I say it today? But somebody last night was like, "Yeah, Raul has a podcast. Are you on it with him?" Like, fuck you, motherfucker, motherfucker. <laughs> that's my podcast. <laughs> do you think this dumb bitch could do anything? <laughs> well, you know, I, I I will say like the little bit that I've allowed you guys to talk today. You guys have a uh, good chemistry, so I think that probably translates you know yeah especially like for the you know overseas subscribers like they probably listen to you guys and and, like are just floored you know like this is america you know (laughs) (laughs) these people are wild man yeah Yeah. i've been watching a lot of pizza reviews lately like i don't know what you guys think about barstool and portnoy and all that shit like I think I love the guy. Like, I think he's my fucking hero. Dude, and then every the- once in a while, I'm like, ah, fucking guy's just a fuck boy. <laughs> you know, like, I, I just, I, I respect the hustle, I guess, is yeah. really the thing. I mean, he started with just doing betting in, like, a little sports paper. It was an actual paper. Yeah. I, I, like I Wikipedia that shit, man. Yeah, it was like a flyer, like a pass out, yeah. like, thing. Yeah. And then I think he got popular because they were doing, like, girls. You know, sex sells. It was all like they had like a girl of the month or something like that. But well, yeah, you know, you know, done. he, you know, he lost that lawsuit with that. Now, don't get me. I don't know her name. It's it's a blonde woman who started out on Barstool and then she branched out onto her own podcast, which became like it's the number one podcast. Oh, call her daddy, the Alex yeah, Cooper girl. Yeah, yeah. So she started on Barstool, mm. and then when she left she sued dave to get because he offered her x amount of money like when her podcast got really big he offered her x amount of money and she turned it down and he was like well then just go on your own and see how good you do and she fucking got a hundred million bucks from spotify Spotify. so it's like um that's like the classic case of bet on yourself and she she totally killed that but like i i watch uh I just am fascinated about content creation Mm -hmm. and like the whole, like, I I don't know about you guys, but when I watch TV, I watch TV and my phone at the same time. What the fuck is wrong with me? Like, it feels so wrong, but like, 
so right at the same yeah. time. I, I don't know what it is. Like, like content creation and reels fascinates me. Like the monetization and like what people will watch mm-hmm. and what shit gets 50,000 views. And, yeah. you know, it's just, it's. Yeah. Wow. Like some of the people that I grew up like watching as far or listening to as far as podcasts, I used to listen to Mike Dolce's, um, Joe Rogan. I listened to David Cho. He's a guy that kind of bet on Facebook with the art where he took the, the stock and got a bunch of money once they went public. Mm. Um, that guy's probably interesting. As yeah. Well. And I listened to, I love Bobby Lee uh, from like Mad TV. He's oh, got, yeah. No, that's awesome. Bad Friends and yeah, uh, Tiger yeah. Belly. Those yeah. are some people I listen to. Dude, one of, the, one of the episodes I saw of him and his girlfriend when they were talking about when they first met and she went to his house mm-hmm. and she was like, and then I don't remember who they had on, but it must have been like Bert um, Kreischer. Yeah, Bert Kreischer. And he was like, he asked the woman, he said, did he clean up his apartment? And she was like, no, he didn't even clean up his apartment. So I knew he was the one, you know, oh, like, yeah. like he let her show up was just, uh, you know, yeah. untouched, just come in, you know, like that's bold, man. That like, guy seems like a wild man. Yeah. Wild man. He said in an interview on another podcast he did that he will never stop drinking. He really? said, no, I was he, talking about Bobby Lee. Oh, I thought Bert. Yeah, no, I thought Bert. Yeah, Bert, 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 Bert yeah, yeah, no, he, he did say that. I <laughs> saw that recently. But, you know, this is a guy that drinks fucking Kool-Aid every day. I saw a clip recently where he was with, uh, what's the other guy? The, the Tom Segura? Yeah, Tom Segura. He was having a conversation with him, and he reaches over, and it takes a drink of his cup, and and he's like, uh, what are you drinking? And he's like, is that coffee or whatever? And he goes, no, it's Kool-Aid. And the guy's like, <laughs> the guy's like what? He goes, you're just <laughs> fucking sitting here drinking Kool-Aid? He's like, what flavor is it? He goes, Red. You know, and like, 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 duh. Yeah. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, it's red Kool Aid, obviously. There was a clip that I had of uh, Bert and Tom talking. I thought it was really good. Let me see if I can find it. You know, it's what's funny is, and this is a, a topic that I think is so interesting is how comedy has become like such a left wing liberal thing. Like if you want to be a successful comedian, like you have to be a certain way politically. And that a lot of stuff like comedy is like being legislated now. Like what's funny and what's not funny. I've always just thought like if somebody says something and you like laugh, that's it. Like that's funny. And it's within the bounds of like, this is okay. But I'm interested in, you know, comedians that are still willing to make fun of both sides like push boundaries well like you know like now it just seems like all the late night shows they just make fun of one side like whereas back like when johnny carson was on tv he famously would not tell anybody who he voted for or what political leaning even though he was a lifetime democrat uh, he wouldn't talk about it on TV and he would make jokes at the expense of both sides, hmm. you know, like, cause there's humor on both sides yeah, for, for sure. sure. And so I just feel like, you know, man, comedy's comedy. If it's funny, it's good. Did you find it? I can't believe that you guys have fucking, I should send you guys like fucking t-shirts that say I survived Two hours and 46 <laughs> minutes with Nate Oliver. <laughs> There's a very famous story about Fiona Apple quit doing drugs because she had to spend a whole night with Quentin Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson doing cocaine. And wow. she fucking quit doing drugs the next day. 
So that's kind of like me. You guys just serve. You might quit the podcast. <laughs> this is too much. No. That's cool, though, that it, it keeps keeps track of time for you. Yeah. Some guy, some blowhard like me keeps rolling along. What, um, like, I got a question. What um, what do you think a good life is? Hmm, I think it's some different for everybody. Uh, you know, I, I think for me, I know what a bad life was. And that's being uh, not accountable, not showing up, not being a good father, not being a good friend. I think a good life is being a good friend, being a good father, being there for people when they need you. You know, like there's all the other shit that we have in life. Like that's why I think Alzheimer's is so cruel because all we really own in life are our memories. Mm-hmm. Like everything else is temporary. Houses, land, cars, money, whatever. All that shit goes away eventually. Like no matter what, it, it's all temporary. The only thing we really own is our memories. So a good life is like where your family respects you and loves you and, and your friends do. That's it. Like it's not a complicated thing. Relationships, you know, like interpersonal relationships. That's it. Yeah, I've, I, I think like from my, my experience, I think a good life is just being a good person. Yeah. You know, not obviously I do things, you know, that like when uh, no one's looking, you know, yeah, all like, the you time, know, you know, <clears throat> like, you know, helping people if you can or, you know, whether you rec- whether you record your charitable deed or not it doesn't mm. matter as long as you've done it exactly so you know i just you know and it doesn't matter if you posted it or didn't post it right. or whatever you still did it if you want to post it that's fine that's too. Fine. exactly that's fine too i mean as long as you're not doing that in an exploited exploitative manner like against the yeah. yeah against the wishes of the person that you're including mm-hmm. in the video or whatever but like the truth is i think that good deeds should get shared because then it inspires people to do their own good stuff like you have literally inspired me like years ago while I was still clutching to a fucking water bottle, barely making it through a night because the liquor store doesn't open till eight o'clock. Like even way back then, I remember thinking, fuck, this guy Raul is a wild man. I've partied hard with this dude, but look, look at what he's doing. Like, look at what he's choosing to do with his off time. Like I'm a big proponent of measuring people by what they choose to do. Like what they say is one thing. Yeah. But what people choose, like right now, like this is your off day. You could be doing something else besides listening to me ramble on about my life. (laughs) But like you're choosing to make content and try to provide a piece of art to the world. Like, like you could be doing anything else. So like anytime you choose to do your coat drive, like that's the thing that really sticks out in my mind that like really inspired me quite a while ago was was to see that, you know, it's such a simple thing. It's cold outside. What can I do? Let's go gather some coats up and put them in the van and drive around, you yeah. know? And so that inspired me in a small way. Still stuck with me years yeah. later, you know? And every year that I see that you're still doing it, I'm like, yeah, man. Like, that's it's, it's for real. Because if it was just some bullshit, you would have done it one year and never done it again. Yeah, for sure. You know, so, you know, like... I don't think maybe even, you know, cause like you guys, you know, you guys joke around a lot and stuff like that, but I don't think you realize that like you have an impact on the world, you know, like even when you're not realizing it, you know, you don't know who's watching you. There, there, there could be a person like me who's really struggling and who's 
thinking to myself, when I get right, I'm going to do something like this. Mm. And so little shit like that, it was the things that I held on to when I was struggling to get through those nights to get to the open liquor store in the morning. Like I would hold on to the fact that when I was able to get well, that I was going to be a better person. And so it took a long time for me to get well and I, I'm not fixed, you yeah. know? Um, but you know, I, I count, I count people like you and people that choose to put out a light in the world, you know, cause like it's easy to be like pessimistic and cynical. That's lazy. In my opinion, it requires a whole lot more effort to choose to spread hope and to, you know, try to uplift people when you can and stuff like that. So, you know, that's my plan. It's not. And you're definitely, you definitely, you already said it on your, you know, when you're able to give back, you're going to pull the trailer mm. wherever you feel like going and you're going to give, you're going to give meals to whoever wants it. I'm going to do no the, questions asked. That's right. I'm going to do the one thing I know how to do. It has to cook good. And, and cook. And like, it's a, something that I can do well enough to where what would be very difficult for someone else to prepare 500 meals for people. Yeah. Like I could do that fairly easily, you know, just because of my training and what I know about producing large amounts of food for crowds. Like I can use that skill to, to directly help some people, you know, and it's not, it's not going to change the world, but it, it might is their world for that moment. It certainly would when yeah. they got a hot plate of food in front of them that, you know, they might not have otherwise had. And more than anything, it could inspire someone else to be the change they want to see, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, because you just never know who's watching. Exactly. And that's why I, and like, I, I try now to, to act like my son's watching everything I do, you know, because it's an easy way for me to decide whether it's a good thing to do or not. Like, would I be okay with my son watching me do that? Mm. Am I behaving in a way that I would be proud of him behaving that way? And it's a pretty high bar to set. And I fall short plenty. But, you know, I think not enough people, like not enough people, like just because something can't be fixed overnight doesn't mean you shouldn't work on it, you know? And like, that's yeah. the problem we got in this country right now. A lot of people think because it's a little screwed up that we should just fold up the tents and quit. You know, it's not worth trying to fix. And in my opinion, couldn't be further from the truth. Like this city is a great example. Memphis, everybody's so down on Memphis, man. You know, it's so dangerous here. And we, we all understand that. Like if you, if you live in Memphis and you, you thinking everything is just safe all the time. Well, you, you gonna find out pretty quick. That's not the truth, but this is a great city. You know, there's a lot of rich cultural history in the city that a lot of other places don't have. And so you just have to, you know, you choose to, to see what you see, like whatever you're looking at, that's what you're going to find. You know, like if you're looking for trouble, you'll find that. If you're looking for things to be optimistic about and hopeful about, there's plenty of that to be seen in this city too. You know? So I'm going to dig in and do my best to, you know, clean up my backyard. That, that's all we can do as people, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. I can't prescribe to other people what they should be doing. I should just say, Hey, I'm going to try to do my thing, you know, just be an example. Right. Yeah. So this clip, it's pretty long, but this is uh they were talking about that takeoff guy that passed away, mm -hmm. the the rapper from the Migos. And that me, really that really touched a lot of people. Yeah. You know, Migos is music that's a little bit like I don't really know much about their music. I'm sure I've heard a lot of it because yeah. it's so popular or whatever. Mm -hmm. But like I couldn't name one of their fucking songs like by name. Only right? one I know is a bad and bougie song. Yeah, like I, I yeah. think I've heard of that, but like, mm -hmm. but, but nevertheless, what surprised me about this guy is how many people 
have been posting on their timelines about how this really affected them. Yeah. That this guy, you know. So this is what, uh, let me skip to this part, but this is what Bert's talking about. Uh, slash bears. It happens. You're fucking 50 years old, man. So listen, 28, it's 28. It's bullshit. Cause can I tell you, I think about this a lot. My dad, 13 years ago, uh, randomly got a, uh, a, uh, the CT scan. Yeah. The full scan that checks your blockage. And they found like 90% blockage, 98% blockage in his widow maker. And they went in and put a stint. Yeah. And so when I went in and got all my carotid arteries checked and did the full blood panel and top to bottom, I was really anxious about it. My dad said, buddy, if I hadn't done this 13 years ago, I'd be dead already. And I had an eclipse of thinking of like, of all the shit he's seen in 13 years. This is not super cheery. What I'm about to say. But all I can see when I see uh, Takeoff passed away is all the stuff that I've seen from 28 to 50 that he doesn't get to see. It's going to make me cry. Oh, right, right. It's, it's, it, it breaks my heart. Yeah. That, um, ooh. So stupid. Oh, man. Why? I don't really, this is, I'm not sound like, but it's, I've seen so much. I didn't have the girls yet. I didn't have, I didn't do anything in this business. I, I didn't, I, I didn't, I've, I've bought houses since then. I've, 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 I've fucking traveled the world and that guy doesn't get to do it. And that, oh, why would I get emotional? Oh. Life is so fucking fragile. I know. And when you see someone as talented as this, get it literally snatched away. Get it snatched away. It's not fucking fair. No, it's not. It's not fair at all. That kid and has so much to do in this life. Something as stupid as a dice game, you know, just being out. And, and by the way, and I know that this isn't going to make sense to anybody, but the fucking, the kid who shot him, his life's over now too. Oh, yeah. The Both of these fucking kids' lives are over. And it all started with that fucking dopamine rush of like, who wants to shoot dice? Yeah. And you know, they were like, let's just shoot fucking dice. God damn! I can't believe I'm crying over. over no, fucking, I, I I get it, man. I mean, it's, it's just it's, it's just stinks. Think about all the stuff. You know, you get to do. I know if you get taken at 28, it's like you're really your life is a so everything's ahead of you. He hadn't done anything yeah. yet. Yeah, I mean, and he'd accomplished so much. Right. But Imagine how much more he could have accomplished. Imagine how many lives he could have changed. It's almost a fucking sin when you think of how many lives that kid could have changed because because he's in a position where. Children that had maybe his upbringing or, or a childhood like his could look at him as a mentor or as a, it's just fucking not fair. Yeah. And I know that this is hypocritical because I make jokes and whatnot. I think he brings up a great point. Uh, because I think about this all the time. Like I should be dead. Like the doctor in the hospital the last time I was in there, the, the last hospitalization I had, like they were sick of me. Like I didn't have insurance. And like I, I had been there four times for hospital stays, multiple days. God knows how much money I owe University of Methodist University Hospital, or whatever is crazy, right? But like this, this one doctor, um, he saw me more than one time. And when he came in to talk to me, the last time I went to the hospital, and like I was begging for um, uh, Ativan, which is what they use to treat withdrawals and DTs from people coming off of alcohol because a lot of people don't know this, but like if you just quit drinking 
like, and you drink a lot like I did, like a gallon of vodka a day, it'll kill you. You'll you know die. happened to Amy Winehouse, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you'll die. I mean, and it's not fucking pretty. Like, oh, I so mean, you die from the withdrawal? Symptoms? Absolutely. It's a hundred times more dangerous than heroin. Like, if you, if you go to the hospital and you are coming off of alcohol, it is a life-threatening situation. And, like, you can, like, you know, everybody's seen Basketball Diaries, and, like, you you know what it looks like for a heroin addict to come off heroin. They're sick. They've got diarrhea. They're throwing up. Uh, they're writhing around on the floor. But, like, they're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Okay? They're going to survive that, most likely. Alcoholics like me... If you just cut that shit off, then that's why I was alluding to it earlier where I would just like if I didn't have enough money to get a bottle before the liquor store closed and I had to like my whole life revolved around getting eight dollars for a bottle of blue top vodka, a a fifth of blue top vodka. And if I ran out before the morning or whatever, I'm talking like hours and hours of just dry heaving and retching and just the absolute worst experience that you could imagine. And when I talked to this doctor I was begging him for Ativan because I was about to go into seizures, lose consciousness, and probably die. And I was begging him for Ativan. And he said, he said, Mr. Oliver, he said, I remember you. Do you remember me? And I said, what does this have to do with you getting my Ativan? Right? And he's like, no, no, no. Your ass is going to talk to me before I give you anything. He said, you have been here four times in the last year and a half. And each time... You've been sicker than the last time. And this time, you're near death. And you're begging me for Ativan again. He said, now I understand why you're asking for it, because I know you want... Because, like, you can't imagine. They're not just, like, regular seizures. Like, like the only way I can describe it is that it feels like you are actively dying. Like, you feel wow. like you are dying. And and uh, he said, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the Ativan you need to survive, but I'm not going to do it until we have this conversation. And I ask you to stop this shit and to stop coming to my hospital from something that you are doing to yourself. He said, this is a university hospital. A lot of people that are here can't afford to go to a different hospital. And a lot of these people have conditions that are chronic and that are untreatable and, in many cases are from things that they had no control over. And here your ass is 35 years old, pretty good health other than this serious alcohol problem you got. And you just keep poisoning yourself. Like he was like, wake the fuck up, man. Like you are, there's people that don't have a chance at life through no fault of their own. And your ass is just wasting it. So I'm going to go get you, order your drugs. You're going to feel better in a few minutes. But until they come to give you that shit, I want you to think about all of the people that are here that aren't here because they poisoned themselves. And they would love to be able to just live. And your ass is out here wasting it. And he was really harsh with me. Yeah. And he was sick of my shit. And he was sick of seeing my stupid face. And I thought to myself... How could this guy remember me? All the thousands of patients he must have seen between those 18 months of me going there four different times. And the answer was because I stood out, man, because I'm talented and young at, you know, 35, that's young, you know, like, like what, what are you doing? Stop poisoning yourself. And that had a huge impact on me. Like 
I, you have a responsibility. If you're a healthy person, you can't be doing this shit to you yourself. If there's people that would knock over a busload of nuns to just have one regular day without chronic pain or whatever it is that they're going through. And I think that, that Bert brings up a good point. Like I should have died. Like all, like I've had two children since I got sober. Francesca, Zeta, Oliver, and my son, Gerard Fletcher, Oliver. And neither one of those two people would exist. And I can't even imagine this world without them. If I hadn't taken to heart what that doctor told me and stopped being so fucking selfish, you know, like look around, man, there's there's kids in this hospital that are sick with shit that you wouldn't give the devil. And your ass just out here wasting it. Like I could see the contempt in his face. Yeah. Lip was quivering. He was so damn mad at me. He probably could have beat the hell out of me, you know, if he wouldn't have gone to jail, you know, like he didn't want to give me out of van. He wanted to watch me suffer, mm-hmm. you know, and I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't just rush to order those drugs. Like I bet he took his sweet ass time so that I could feel a little bit of what because I had asked these people to bail me out of this situation. Because when you're withdrawing from alcohol, like I said, it makes you feel like you're going to die. And the only thing that stops it is barbiturates, like Ativan, you know, Valium. And so, because it's your body is like freaking out. Like it's like, it's just, you're, it's fighting you the whole time. And so like, I just feel like people need to, to hear these type of stories and to think about what they're doing before, you know, because it could all come crashing down really fast, you know, like one bad, like one night of binge drinking, you know, like can change your life forever. If you like, I drove drunk so much. Oh my God. When I think about it, it makes me, it may, it literally causes a physical reaction in, inside of me. When I think about how many times I woke up in my vehicle with it running, like one time I drove, I, I passed out while I was driving And apparently my truck just like drifted to a stop on the interstate and like drifted over to one of those concrete barriers and like ground to a stop. And I woke up, it was like five o'clock in the morning. It was still like kind of dark. My radio's blaring, my lights are on, but I'm just like ground into the side of this barrier on the interstate. And like no telling how long I've been sleeping there, at least two or three hours or something. I'm sure cops drove by like it's a miracle, like a literal Christmas miracle that I didn't kill somebody's family, mm-hmm. you know, and that was only one instance of me doing shit like that. And I never got in a DUI wreck. I never hurt anybody. I thank God every day that I never hurt somebody's family. You know, like I care so little about what would have happened to me necessarily, but like, how could I, how could I, have ever gone on and lived the rest of my life if I had like ended somebody's family. And so I just wish more people would realize that that shit, just cause they sell it at circle K doesn't mean that it's, it's safe. Yeah. So just be careful is what I tell people. And while you're still calling the shots before it gets to be a big problem, when somebody else is telling you what you have to do, make a change. And that's it. I know that's some heavy shit. You know, I, I, I wish we could lighten the mood a little bit just because I, I knew that it would at least be a topic of conversation, but 
I don't want people to feel like it's preachy because I was very fortunate. I had some good people that, that advised me and counseled me that had the perfect amount of, um, non preachiness, just like, you know, this is the information, take it with it, whatever you want to do with it. But like, I ain't telling people how to live their lives, but just use me as an example of where you don't want to go. Yeah. I think people need to hear it, man. Not everything is sunshine and rainbows. Like Rocky said, well, remember, like I told you, um, well, I don't know if it was our last latest conversation on Facebook, but like I was saying, you just never know who's listening to this mm-hmm. and how, what you do, everything you've said today, how it could help them. It's painful to me to talk about this shit, man. Like, you know, I, like I tell people all the time that like, if you think I take any kind of sick pleasure in telling people that I was a bad father and a bad friend and a liar and like none of that shit makes me feel good. It actually takes me right back to the to that time when I was that person. Mm -hmm. But the reason that I talk about it and the reason why I don't pull any punches about it is because, um, I owe that to the person that's listening to it, that can relate to it at all and say, even though I am here, I can get to here because if that fucking guy could do it. Yeah. And Erling told me that one time, you know, he's like, man, you got to tell people about this shit because, you were the lostest of causes. And so if people can look at your story and say, I mean, this guy was, he was dead man walking. And now he's got two beautiful children, a wife who's way too good for him. You know, I'm building a business. You know, like I have a, a lot in my mind that makes me like the most successful man in the world. I tell my wife all the time, I'm the richest guy that there is. Yeah, I have everything I want. My children are healthy. You know, like I, I just... I just thank God every day. No, I appreciate you sharing your story with us, man. I appreciate you guys listening to it, you know, cause it, it helps me a lot to, I feel like it's part of my, my amends that I have to make, you yeah. know, but you guys have to listen for me to be able to, yeah. to tell it. So you play one more clip and then, um, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll let you go. But this is, uh, I thought this was pretty good. Is it, is it burning oh, again or? Oh, no. Seneca said that the one thing, Seneca said that the one thing that all fools have in common is that they're always delaying to live. They're saying, I'll get to this later. I'll do this someday. You got to do it now. But that's just kind of like what you're talking about. Like if you always just put everything off or, or the don't. good time is now. Yeah. Like, like you only have now. Yesterday and tomorrow is not for us. Mm-hmm. You don't own it. So that's the perfect clip to end on. Yeah. I couldn't agree with that more. So where can everybody find you at? <clears throat> uh, so, yeah, uh, for the uh, for I know the throng of followers that will be coming my way. I know I got to think of the logistics here. We're going to crash the server. Uh, <laughs> No, so anyways, my uh, you know on Facebook I'm just my name or whatever Nate Oliva, uh, but like I have an Instagram page for my for my business which is um, half cocked twenty twenty two or half cocked underscore twenty twenty two, so that'd be a good place to reach me for sure. And then your food truck is parked at twenty one seventy eight Madison in Memphis Tennessee, right next to the ballet company there at Cooper and Madison. Uh, and we're there every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I think um, 
if my wife is not crazy about the late night thing, but I, I almost got her convinced that I can stay open till like one or two on Friday and Saturday yeah. nights. And then we're going to try to transition into doing brunch, sort of an all day brunch on Sunday. This one right here is this year. Yep. That's it. With that ridiculous tribal logo. So that, lo- <laughs> that logo has to at least be addressed. My wife downloaded that. So we obviously started everything on a shoestring budget and yeah. she, she did all of the marketing and all of the stuff for our, like our to go packaging. We got a cock stamp that we put on our paper sacks and like everything we already had it at home. And so when she, we needed a logo cause we do like a, like an LED, LED TV underneath the window that's got pictures of what we like our food and the menu and, and we can change it or whatever. And so we needed like a cover page for the logo. And so she just like Googled logo, cock logo. And then that one came up and I was like, oh, that's fucking perfect. It's like an affliction shirt. If it was a, <laughs> if it was a logo for yeah. a company was an affliction shirt, that would be it. It's like a bad tribal tattoo. Uh, but I, it, like it grew on me and now I like it. So we're, yeah. we're going to keep it. Um, but yeah, uh, I encourage anybody that, you know, uh, we try to, we try to like, make contact with all of our guests like and find out like their story and why they came and why they tried us out and like you know I'll talk about food all day long for sure yeah I appreciate it man that's uh that's interesting so is it open today we can we get it today yeah yeah as a matter of fact I was just realizing that it's probably 315 or so it and- is Three close three thirty four. Oh yeah, shit! I'm He's like to, I gotta go prep. I, well, no, all the all the prep is done. I knew that I was coming to, yeah. to visit with you guys today, so I I got all the prep done. But I still got to get over there and get it opened up by five. So, um, I just want to tell you guys thank you. Like really, I really appreciate it because, uh, like I feel about fifty pounds lighter right now. Like yeah. just because of a lot of that shit, like. It's just stuff that I carry around with me all the time. And like my wife's heard the story so many times that, you know, it's like, so I just appreciate it, man. Thank you. No doubt. I appreciate you, man. You like I said, I'm going to come get it today. So you said five o'clock you'll be. Yep. I'll be going at five o'clock, 2178 Madison. All right. Well, I'll be there. I will hook you up like a tow truck. You, uh, gonna get three questions? No, not today. Not- I think he covered everything. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See, see how he looks beaten. No, and, no, and no, no. So down. like, <laughs> no, he no. He covered everything. <laughs> I mean, I guess I can ask him, but yeah. like, so Excuse I always me. ask people, uh, what do you think happens when we die? Is one of the questions. Mm. Well, I mean, I think from an intellectual standpoint, that question has been answered with the weight of a soul. Mm hmm. Um, I'm sure you guys are familiar with that or whatever. They observed the the weight of a soul leaving a body. Yeah. And so what that suggests to me is that there's something. Uh, and that, in my opinion, um, it's more important to believe in something than necessarily what you believe in. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, I'm hopeful that um, it's a feeling of oneness and connectiveness with my family. Like, that's what I hope. So okay. that's what I think. That's what I think happens. Another thing is, uh, who would you like to give flowers to? Who in your life would you like to give appreciation to so they can hear it while they're alive? Mm, my mother. Ah, see, you guys, I didn't cry the whole time. See, my mother and I are estranged right now. I don't, I don't speak to my mother right now. It's really weird. I grew up, my mom was a single mom. My dad wasn't around. I'll just make it short by saying she was the best mother you could possibly imagine. Like literally she was everything. 
But after my dad died five years ago, um, I haven't spoken to my mother since the day after my dad died. So when my dad died, it was like my mom died too. But sometimes when two Native Americans, my mom has a Native American ancestry on on her uh, dad's side. Sometimes even people that love each other more than anybody in the world can have a a divide. There could be a, a great chasm between those people. And so sometimes when you don't talk to somebody for a long time, the longer that it goes, the harder it is to break that ice. And so if I had to choose one person, I picked my mom. Okay. That's beautiful. And what's your advice for people and what mark do you see yourself leaving on the world? Mm. My advice to people is to love yourself because you can get in a lot of trouble if you don't. Uh, and the, and the, the mark I hope I leave on the world is kind and humble children that are, um, kind to their fellow man. I think there's not a whole lot more important than kindness because it doesn't cost anything. And if more people just, and I know that sounds so freaking hokey and like, you know, there's some people that deserve to have the day they deserve. Like I get that. But in general, that's the the mark that that's really the only mark that you can leave. Cause if you build a big building, eventually that will crumble away into sand dust. Um, but when you leave, children that are not broken when you leave children that are emotionally well adjusted and kind and that love themselves they're probably pretty unlikely to hurt other people mm. so that's it i think we'll end on that note yeah great man that was fuck that's good thank yeah. you so much for coming on Right on, brother. I appreciate well, I, it, man. I hope you guys come get some chicken tonight. Yeah, for sure. And do you others. have anything that, you know, he's vegetarian, so... That, I do. Know, As a matter uh, of fact, Eggplant... Uh, katsu. Katsu, yeah. yeah so, I knew you started with a K, but I couldn't remember yeah, what it was. So, so eggplant katsu is just panko bread... Katsu is panko bread breaded anything. It mm-hmm. could be shrimp or eggplant or whatever. Uh, but the difference in mine is I make my own bread, and then I make my own panko breadcrumbs that I coat with my own proprietary thing to make them extra crispy. And so my fried eggplant, I use Chinese eggplant instead of traditional eggplant. Yeah. And Chinese eggplant, if you ever had it, it's very sweet. It, it like, if you eat it and someone didn't tell you it was eggplant, you would think it was something much better mm-hmm. because it has a really mild flavor, unlike regular eggplant, which is super bitter. Uh, and so it's totally vegetarian. Like the, as a matter of fact, it would be vegan, except there's a little bit of egg in the in the coating, you know. Um, but yeah, so and I do specials all the time, like when uh, when the farmers markets are more up and like right now they it's pretty limited selection when you go there. But uh, I, I like to make my specials vegetarian, and when I do soup, I always make it vegetarian because you don't need meat and soup to make it good. Yeah, and so that way you can please more people, you know, like whatever. So. Uh, I'll always have something for you, dude. Thanks, Lou. Don't you forget. <laughs> I'll make you some some special. Ch- I know you're a cheese guy. Yeah, yeah. So have you ever had hand-pulled mozzarella? Mm-mm. No. Oh, dude. This is, you have to change that as soon as possible. Yeah, for sure. Like, I, like, like, 
I don't think people realize how much like good quality cheese matters in pizza and like hand pulled mozzarella. There's nothing better. I'll hook you up sometime. We'll make some together. Yeah. We could, we could do a podcast about that sometime. Yeah, for sure. Hell yeah. Cheese and pizza and good eating. Yeah. Hell look yeah. at the smile on his face, dude. He's so happy right now. <laughs> All like I, I had to do was bring up pizza, pizza. and cheese, man. <laughs> done that a long time ago. Oh, man. Thanks, bro. Well, like I said, I appreciate it, man. It's All right, thanks, good. man. You guys are the best. All right. Bye. Bye.